Good morning, everyone. Hello, hello. Welcome to our Unshakable Women's Retreat. I am super happy that so many of you came and are spending your entire Saturday with us. We are going to have a really, really good time. So I just want you to have extended time with Jesus today. So we're just going to set everything else aside and completely focus on him. Um, I want you to rest today so you don't have to do any errands. You don't have to do any laundry. You don't have to make lunch for the kids today. No emails, no customer service at your job. You just get to just enjoy yourself and rest in the Lord today. So I know that we all have some really amazing things going on in our lives, but we also have life. So some of us came with pain today. Some of us came with something that's on our heart. And we're just going to give all that to the Lord today. Yeah, and let him just do a working in our lives, and we're just going to grow in more intimate relationship with him. I've given our speakers liberty. If they go a little bit under, they go a little bit over, it's okay. We'll just adjust accordingly, and we're going to have a really good time. Um, after um, I uh, pray, the band here, look at our awesome band. Ah, they're going to lead us into a time of worship, and I love what Pastor's been saying the last couple of weeks, that we're not going to be spectators. I love these people, and they're dressed so sharp, but we're going to try and stay focused and really be participators um, and just love on Jesus and acknowledge who he is and honor him. And then after uh, we have a time of worship, I'm going to give Jacob the liberty to come up and share with us. So I'm going to uh, tell you a little bit about him now because I'm not going to come back up here before he speaks. So Jacob is our young adults pastor. He's married to my sister-in-law over there. Jacob's my brother, uh, Bianca, for seven years now. Uh, they got a little baby Mila that I'm obsessed with. <laughs> and uh, he uh, works at um, PepsiCo. He's a manager for Fritos. I'm not Fritos, Funyuns. Is it Funyuns, Mom? What does he do, Funyuns? <laughs> yeah, Funyuns. Now, if you want a crazy story, ask him how Funyuns are made. It's like a 50-step process for you to get a Funyun. So if you want to know, ask him. Uh, and see, I think that's it. Jacob loves golf. He's very raw. He's very unapologetic. So you're going to get challenged today when Jacob comes up and shares with you. Um, all right. And then after that, we're going to have some discussion time. We're going to get to hear from all of our other amazing speakers. You're going to be blessed, okay? They have been working really hard and really diligently uh, to share with all of you today. Um, and then I want us to look at what our theme for today is. So we've called today Unshakable. Unshakable. Come on, Mara. Yes. Uh, So this is what unshakable means. It means not possible to weaken or get rid of, not able to be moved, utterly firm and unwavering. That is our God. Okay. Unshakable, firm, unwavering, steady, consistent, always the same yesterday and forevermore. Man, that, that's encouraging. That's uplifting. We serve an almighty sovereign Lord. So I want to invite you all to stand with me and I'm going to read these verses uh, for us. If you'll join me, we see in the Bible two references to being unshakable. So God and his kingdom are unshakable and we too can be unshakable. So let's read this here. Hebrews 12, 28 through 29. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe 
For God is a consuming fire. Woo, come on. Thank you, Jesus. And then, to top it off, not only is he unshakable, but he says that we too can be unshakable. So Psalm 62, 5 through 8. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. O God, rest my salvation and my glory, my mighty rock. My refuge is God. Trust in him at all times. O people, pour out your heart before him, because God is a refuge for us. Come on, Lord, we exalt your name. We praise you on high. Today, we're focusing on you and you alone. We place you at the center of every single thing we do today. We place you at the center of our lives, Lord. Um, I just pray over each lady. God, wherever they are, whatever season they are in, whatever emotions they're feeling, whatever mind space they're in, that you meet them where they are, Lord. That they'll have ears to hear exactly what you have for them today. And that each and every one of us will grow in more intimate and personal relationship with you. That we'll be propelled to love you and to love people. To know and to stand firm that you and your kingdom are unshakable. That you are firm, you are steady, you are strong, you are our fortress and our strength. And then in turn, as believers, as followers of you, we can also be unshakable to anything that this world brings against us. That we can serve you in a mighty and powerful way, constantly declaring your name, Jesus. We thank you and we praise you, Lord. All right, let's go ahead and worship and praise our unshakable God. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah, Jesus. I raise a hallelujah in the presence of my enemies. I raise a hallelujah Louder than the unbelief I raise a hallelujah And my weapon is a melody I raise a hallelujah Heaven comes to fight for me. I'm gonna see in the middle of the storm. Middle of 
history I'll raise a hallelujah Cause fear you lost your hold on me And I'm gonna sing in the middle of the storm
Yeah. 
God, thank you, Lord, that just at the mention of your name, Jesus, the darkness flees, God. Your light penetrates through every part of darkness that we walk through in this life, God. God, I pray this morning, God, as you have been lifted up, God, I pray that you would draw us all near to you, God. God, let us experience you this morning, God, and through this, out this afternoon, God, in such a real and a tangible way, God. God, let this not just be another event, God. Not, let this not just be another um, party or get together, God, but let it be a time, God, where you would speak to our hearts, God, that you would challenge us, God, and that we would walk out of this place changed and different in Jesus' name. We love you so much, God. We thank you, Jesus, for your name. You are unshakable. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You guys can go ahead and have a seat this morning. We love you, Jesus. Ladies, ladies, ladies. How, how are you guys doing today? And, and there's some men here as well. But for the most part, the ladies. Well, I'm excited to be here today. Um, hopefully... I can get us rolling, but I do want to make a disclaimer before I get started. As you know, the premise of this woman's tree is being unshakable, and um, the verses we were kind of looking at for the for today was Hebrews chapter twelve, um, cha- uh, verses twenty five through twenty nine, and that's the point of my message is those twenty five to six seven twenty nine five verses, but. For me as a person, for those of you who don't know me very well, who have never um, heard me speak or anything of that nature, I really feel a need at times to put a context of where we're at in the Bible and not just take a couple of verses, but then also I like to also give a background of the whole book. So I only really have two points to make today that I hope stick with you guys as you continue the rest of the day, the rest of the week. But it's going to take me like seven points to get there. Okay? So it won't be too bad. Hopefully you stick with me. I hope everything tracks. If I go on a rabbit trail today and it makes absolutely no sense to you whatsoever, I, I, uh, I work overnights. And this is the first time. This is the first time I've ever spoken after working for 12 hours. So, whoo, it might get crazy today. But we are in Hebrews, all right? And... Hebrews chapter 12 specifically, but what I wanted to talk about to get us started was that if you look from chapter 1 through chapter 12, and then there's one more chapter after 12, 13, I really believe that there's, there's five different things that the writer of Hebrews is, is giving to us, in my mind, as a, as a warning, but also, that's not my phone, is it? No, it's not me. As a warning, but also as an encouragement. So I think if you're on one side of the fence of being an unbeliever, it's, it's a, a warning to you, a stern warning, Hebrews. But if you're on the side of faith, it should be an encouragement to you and how you would live your life. And so just to kind of break it down real quick, I, I really think that the five things just in general for Hebrews, if you want to write these down, is it starts off in chapter two with neglect. And how you neglect God, before you know it, that neglect of God, that neglect of Jesus leads you to reject him. And then we go into unbelief. And we talk about, that's talked about in chapter 3. And how if you 
depart from him and you never turn to the new covenant and you stay in the old covenant, you have an unbelief in your savior. And then we go down to chapter five and chapter six, and that gets us into tradition in Judaism and the, in the tradition that would have happened then, uh, during the Mosaic law, during, um, the time pre Jesus, during Jesus. And then even after Jesus, and even till this day, uh, traditions in, in Jewish culture, And then we get to the fourth part where I believe it's impatience in chapter 10 and 11 and how a lot of people who were Jewish before then, who were going to convert, who had converted, had a lot of issues on what they expected when Christ came and and the reality of what actually happened. So there was this expectation of a new kingdom, but it didn't look like what they thought it would look like. A lot of people believe that when Jesus came, he was going to take over the world and he was going to trash the Roman empire. And when he came and died, but he also rose and built his kingdom, it didn't look how we would imagine it to look. And so during that time, people would have been impatient and they would have drifted away, not believing the promises of God were real because they weren't happening how they wanted them to happen in the time frame they wanted them to happen in. And then I think we get to, to what we're talking about today, which we get into chapter 12, and it's fear and the fear of being persecuted, the pressure of living a godly life in a godless world, which is something I think we could all relate to now is, and then is the aspect of if I really live how Christ asked me to live, I'm going to go against the grain of what the world is. And and I think a couple of months ago in one of our services, I, uh, I had the idea or the thought that I shared was if you go to a foreign country and you were to dress as an American soldier in a hostile area, you would be targeted. But if you blend it in, no one will really care. But a lot of us are blending in, so no one really cares. But if you're actually the soldier in the war, then there is a ton of pressure that you're going to be persecuted, that you're going to be ridiculed, that you're going to be different, that you're going to be mocked, you're going to be laughed at. And what comes with that is the discipline of God, the purpose to run your race, which is talked about in the first part of the chapter, that God's going to discipline you, but it's for a good work, it's for your benefit, that you have to run your race, that you're going to identify with Christ, and that over your life, you're conforming to the Christ standard. So you're in the direction of perfection. That's what I've always liked to call it. You're never going to be perfect, but your life should always trend in the direction towards perfection. But there is fear within that fear of rejection, fear of a million different things. And I think every one of us in here could without a doubt say that we have at times been afraid of what serving God would really look like um, and how it would impact us. But then we get to verse 18. And that is where we begin the process of understanding what isn't like the title of my message. I don't know. Oh, it's up there. Beautiful. It's an unshakable kingdom. And, and if we understand what that means, what that does to our life, but to get to that point, I wanted to start in verse 18 and I'm going to read verse 18 through 24 and I'm reading it out of the English standard version. And it says, for you have not come to what may be touched a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of whose words made the hearers beg that no further message be spoken to them for they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stone. 
Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem and the innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks better word than the blood of Abel. So it's a real quick background. In the first verses, 18, 19, 20, is it 21 as well? And 21, that is in reference to Mount Sinai. So Jesus, well, that's not Jesus. I'm sorry. He's not the one who wrote, well, he did write the book, but we're not going to go down that road. But here is a reference to Mount Sinai. So this is a reference to when Moses was given the law, when he was given the 10 commandments and how he had to be protected by God to even approach God and that mountain and that how no one could even approach the mountain. And even in later times, if a animal was to roam on Mount Sinai, they couldn't even physically touch that animal to kill it. They had to stone it because they weren't even worthy to touch it, to kill it because it went to where God was at, at Mount Sinai. And, and even after that, Moses, who has seen quite a lot of stuff, who stepped up to Pharaoh multiple times, who was the ruler of the world at that time, was trembling in fear to see and be in the presence of God, an unapproachable light. And, and, and when I see this, it's, it's, it's a terrifying thing because even later in the Bible, it talks about how, well, not later, I'm I'm getting confused. Not later in the Bible for Hebrews, but later from when that happened with Moses, that people couldn't even look at Moses because the glory that was coming off of him just from being where God was at. And we see that. And the importance to me of this is there's two ways in life that you're going to be judged. So when your time comes, there's only two different ways you get judged. You get judged by the law or you get judged by the gospel. And if you get judged by the law, you're still in Mount Sinai. So here in verse 18, 19, and 20, the writer is telling us, and well, he's telling the Jewish people at that time, if you look to the law, if you look to that, to when the Ten Commandments were written, to where Mosaic law started, if you look back to Exodus, you look back to the beginning, if you look at that, and that's what you're seeing, you are going to be condemned, but Zion, but come to the Mount of Zion. And that's where I want to be. So I don't want to be judged by the law. I want to be judged by the grace of God. And Mount Zion is a symbolic representation of God and his dwelling place. Whereas Mount Sinai is a representation of the physical world that is legalistic that will perish. So if you look here at verse 18, we're getting a picture of Mount Sinai. And then even if you look at 2 Corinthians uh, 3 and 7, which I think is pretty cool. I love personally, this is just a tidbit. I'm going on a rabbit trail. I love to look back at different verses in the Bible because I'm a very skeptical individual, um, extremely, extremely skeptical individual. But when I see different verses in the Bible that so well um, mesh together, whether it's Old Testament that then comes into the New Testament, and it's an old promise that then is fulfilled. If it's something that was talked about in Corinthians and then it's talked about again in another part of the Bible from different writers, from different generations, from different time frames, from different areas, and it all so well together goes and never contradicts itself, it encourages me. And it really encourages me 
Because I, I was once a person who thought, what if someone just wrote this Bible and I'm living for it? Some random guy had a real good idea. Here's what I'm doing now. But then the more I think about it, the more I'd be like, well, how could somebody write this with this writing style in 1,200 years ago, but then this person wrote this this many years ago, but they mean the exact same thing. So for me as a person, if I can go back and see that Moses was there at Mount Sinai, and then later on in Haggai, later on in Psalms, later on in Isaiah, they're always talking about the world coming to an end in Jesus. And then I look in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Corinthians, Romans, Galatians, and that's all talking about that's happening. And there's a promise. It encourages me. But I'm not going to get on that subject because I'm getting off here. I'm moving away. Moving away. But in 2 Corinthians 3, 5 through 9, I'm just going to read here two verses. It says, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant not of the letter, but of the spirit for the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of his glory, which was being brought to the, to an end, will not the ministry of the spirit have even more glory. So here in Corinthians, Paul is telling you, the, that was the ministry of death carved into stones. It was the tablets. It was the Ten Commandments. So he's reminding you of something that happened. And then again in Hebrews, you're hearing the same thing where Moses trembled in fear because he knew what it meant to live a life where you could not measure to God's standard. Because when you look at God, he's not a big bad God who doesn't like you. So he put up this outrageous standard or rules that you have to live by, he gave you a law that measures his own himself. So we have God who's perfect. His law was perfect. We can't be perfect. We don't meet that standard. So God never intended it to be like, okay, I'm going to come up with 1,538 laws. And out of those 1,538 laws, Jacob's not going to be able to do any of them. And I'm going to sit there and laugh at him. No, that was the perfection of him and his, and who he is. That's his perfection. That's his glory. And we're just never going to measure up to that. So if we know that, and we know that's what the law brings us, we know that it condemns us. We know that we're not worthy of it. We need to go to Zion. We need to go to Zion. That needs to be the whole point. Cause I love it right here. You know, when people say like, you know, like the preachers get hyped up and I don't have a ton of energy today, so I don't think I can get super hyped up. But the one guy who's like, but God, and you're just like, yes, but God, well, I see that here where I'm looking at it and it's kind of getting terrifying to think of what, what Jesus, what Jesus, what the word's telling us right here, what's going to happen. But then you see the, but Mount Zion, but, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. That is great news. Cause I don't want to be part of the fire, the darkness, the gloom, the smoke. I don't want to be part of any of that. I want to be. I don't want to be a part of God's divine wrath. I want to be part of an eternal kingdom. So you look at verse 22 and it says, but you coming to Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, because with the law, you couldn't approach God. That's the imagery. I can't approach Mount Zion. Moses was only able to do because God protected him. No one else could not even animals could. I couldn't approach it. But now with grace, with Jesus, with redemption, with someone standing in my place to make me righteous. And I put my faith in that. I can now one day when it's all said and done could be in the presence of God and there would be no other way for that to happen. And so at this time, this writer, which I believe it's Paul, but some people don't, there's no real writer of Hebrews, but I personally think it's Paul who wrote it. He's telling the people who are Jewish, why would you turn back to Mount Zion, to Mount Sinai? 
Why would you want to live that life where you can't even approach God? Why would you not want to be where there's grace, where there's forgiveness, where there's peace, where there's mercy, where there's something given to you that you do not deserve to where one day you're going to get to dwell in that eternal place in the presence of God. And so this is what gets into my seven points. Okay. One Zion represented grace. It was atonement. It was the dwelling place. You could approach God there. And then even if you look at Psalms 132 verses 13 and 14, it says, for the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell for I have desired it. So there again in the Old Testament, Jesus, God is saying something. And then here it is being confirmed in the New Testament for us. For those people who are skeptics, as myself. But real quickly, just in these few couple of verses, you can see it starts off with the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. So what are you promised? You're promised heaven, a heavenly Jerusalem. Two, what are you going to be there with? You're going to be there with innumerable angels in festal gathering. So you're having a celebration with tens of thousands and tens of thousands of angels. So many that according to the Bible, you couldn't even number them. Then you go to the next part and it says, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. So you put your faith in God. You got to become part of the firstborn and you were enrolled in class. You were signed up for day, day, daycare. You were signed up for daycare. So now not only are you in heaven, you're with the angels. You're part of the church of the force burned. So you're inheriting the glory of God through Christ and you're part of the church. And then the next part you get into, it says, and to God, the judge of all. So you're there with God. Then it says, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, which that's in reference to those who died before Jesus. So that means not only are you going to be in heaven not only are you going to be with angels, not only are you going to be part of the church because you inherited it, and not only are you going to be there with God, but you're also going to be there with Abraham, Isaac, Joseph, David. You're going to be there with Enoch. You're going to be there with Moses. You're going to be there with all the people. Isn't that pretty cool? That one day you're going to get to be there, and it's not going to be a place where, hey, it's two blocks to the left, four houses over. It's one house, it's one mansion, and you have a room. And you get to be there with those individuals. And then next, you get to the next part, and it says here, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. So now who's there too? Jesus, the person who's mediating between you, he's there with you. And then last, it says, well, this is pretty cool right here. It says, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Abel was a sacrifice, Abel sacrificed was accepted to God. God accepted Abel's sacrifice. He didn't accept Cain's sacrifice. And as we all know, Cain killed him. But in that situation, God is telling you, look at this. I accepted Abel's sacrifice. That sacrifice in relation to Jesus doesn't match. So what you're getting from God, from Christ as a sacrifice is better than what you would have ever gotten as Abel. So here it's to me, it's an encouragement to me. It's an encouragement to me that I'm not held to the law standard to the perfection of Christ, which I can never achieve, but I'm giving grace 
through my faith in Christ. And because of that, heaven's coming for me and I'm going to be with angels and I'm going to get to be part of the church and I'm going to get to be with God. I'm going to get to be with my savior. I'm going to get to be with all the people from all around the world that knew Christ at one point in time. And we're all going to live in the house together. And not only that, but Jesus is going to be right there next to me. And that sacrifice is what give me an eternal life with Christ. So that is all the preceding points to the unshakable kingdom point that I like to make today. Yeah, I'll be 100% honest with you guys. When I was getting prepared for this, um, I told myself I could probably have made like maybe six or seven sermons out of it, but this is not a woman's retreat um, series. So we're not, we're not going to have a, a one next week, one week after that. I got one shot, so I'm really trying to condense it all in there. But here we're going to go to verse 25 through verse 29. And it says, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised yet once more, I will not shake only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase yet once more indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is the things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship and reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. I mean, I don't, sometimes, sometimes I read the Bible and I don't really know what else to say. Like that's better than what I could tell you. I just want to walk off and say, all right, guys, that was it. You read the Bible, you heard it, you're good to go. But I'm going to do my best to maybe give a little bit more insight in this. So I'm going to look here at Psalm 68, where it says, earth shook, even Mount Sinai. And then we look at Haggai 2.6. It says, fear not, for thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And then even here, which is my favorite one, is in Revelation 6.12 through 17, which is a little bit longer, so bear with me. It says, when he opened the sixth seal, I look and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth. The moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as fig trees shed its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. That's pretty wild. And then the last one I want to share real quick that relates to it here is second Peter three ten. But that day of the Lord will come like a thief. And the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So this is all to say that the physical world as we know it will be decimated, if you will. And even to, to, to maybe take a second in your mind and imagine like the, the picture that's being painted for you of the world being sucked up like a scroll, like a, I can't even say the word right, scroll. Imagine that, like when you read that and you hear it, and then even to think the reference of fig tree, dead fruit falling off, that that's going to be stars falling from the heavens to earth. That's wild. I don't know about you guys, but when I see something like that, that is unbelievable to me that that is going to happen, that the world's going to be consumed by a fire. But like John says in Revelations, when he continues in the chapter, that he saw a new heaven and he saw a new earth. And that is where we want to be. So you have to ask yourself, what 
do I do? What does this mean to me? Because when I, when, I, when I see these verses here and I think about the unshakable kingdom, I, f- I feel like there's only two places you can get. Where if you saw chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, and you saw all the different reasons and all the different ways that you're being warned of the impending doom if you don't believe in Christ. But now you're, you're, you're given this, this message, you're given this understanding that the world's going to end one day but that there's a kingdom that's unshakable. So if I don't believe in God, it's the most terrifying thing that I could ever hear. And it's one of the sternest warnings you'll get in the whole entire New Testament because it's pretty much telling you that if you don't believe in God, you're gonna be wiped off the face of the earth like you were nothing. And then for all of eternity, you're gonna be tormented. It doesn't say all that in this particular verse. But as you continue on into Revelation in different verses, it tells you you'll be tormented forever and forever and forever and forever and forever. And you'll constantly blaspheme God. And he'll constantly pour out his wrath on you for all of eternity. Whereas there's an eternal heaven and earth that's the new Jerusalem that you then would want to be a part of. So if I'm not a believer, I should be scared. If I am a believer, this is where I would hope everyone in this room is but I can't be for certain. I would hope that if if I'm a believer, that this is a root and a foundation in which I could build my life off of. Because I could look at it and I could see that if this kingdom is unshakable and it's forever eternal and I am a part of it, then why doesn't everything and how I live my life flow from that understanding? To where if I'm, an, if I'm coming from an unshakable God who has an unshakable kingdom and I'm part of that unshakable kingdom and I'm promised it as, as a believer in him, then why don't I have unshakable faith? Why don't I have unshakable love? Why don't I have unshakable courage? Why don't I have unshakable way to share my faith with somebody else? Why not? If this is what I have and I am part of a kingdom that will never be shaken for all of eternity when the rest of the world and the physical world as we know will be wiped out from the face of everything and stars will literally fall out of the sky. If I am a part of that, why am I ever scared when I'm facing trials in life? Why do I ever turn from God? Why do I ever believe that my struggle, my battle, my addiction, my pain is too much for God to overcome? Why? Why would I ever think such a thing? And, I, and I'll, I've said this for a couple of years now, and I'll always say it. If Jesus was risen from the grave by the Holy Spirit, and that same Holy Spirit now dwells inside of you, you have no excuse of why you don't share the word. You have no excuse of why you're broken. You don't have an excuse of why you're not progressing to be more and more and more useful for God. You don't have an excuse of why you're not growing, why you're not changing, why you're not preaching, why you're not discipling, why you're not loving. You don't have an excuse. And you can sit here in America and we can all tell ourselves, man, it's great. I can do whatever I want. No one challenges me. No one pushes me. No one persecutes me. I don't lose my job because I say I believe in God. I don't get rejected from college because I say I believe in God. My family doesn't leave me. I don't have to leave my family. We don't suffer that pain. We don't suffer that persecution that the rest of the world does. And because of it, we're a bunch of lions, tigers, and bears that are stuck in a zoo, not living for God out in the world, changing people's lives. And we need to know what we're rooted in. And the more you know this word, because I'll tell you right now, I grew up in church my whole entire life. I didn't really pay attention, but I grew up in church my whole life and, um, I didn't ever really care. I didn't pay attention. I thought I could just acknowledge God and I'll just share with you personally. 
and this is for me to you. I listened to some good sermons. Um, I went to some good conferences. I went to some good youth camps. And nothing ever changed my life until I decided I wanted to read the Bible for myself. And so I would just encourage every one of you in here today, if you're not where you want to be, you're not going to get there because of me. You're not going to get there because of Mike Benson on Sunday mornings. You're not going to get there because of Don. You're not going to get there because of Christian Sean. You're only going to get there when you decide to surrender your life for God and give it everything you have. Because at the end of the day, it costs, salvation is free. It's a gift from God, but it costs you everything. And the more we can understand that when I come to the cross, I come naked, I come alone, and I come leaving everything behind, the better we can then serve God. But if you don't know what you're rooted in, you don't know that Mount Zion's for you, you don't know that you're part of the unshakable kingdom, then you're going to be shaking and breaking all day and every week. And sometimes, I don't mean to be a hater, but I'm going to go off on a hater rampage. Sometimes, I, I, I think we all live different lives. And some of us are on a two-year plan, a 10-year plan, a 20-year plan, a 50-year plan. But there needs to be progress in every one of our lives. Because if there's not progress, we're not demonstrating that the fruit is coming out of us, that there's a Holy Spirit in us to transform us. But I, I really, really, really with all my heart believe that the biggest hindrance to people today and to church today and to all of us in here today is that we don't know what truth is. And since we don't know what the truth is, we don't know that we're part of a kingdom that is unshakable. We don't know it. And if you would know the truth that could overcome your lie, then you start to see some things in your life change. And before you know it, you're a solid rock because you're built on the cornerstone and you're going out there every single day and you're changing people's lives. People need you. If you look at the world right now, God doesn't really need you. He doesn't need you to be God. He wants you, which is way better than to be needed. You're wanted by him. But at the end of the day, people need you. If you look around your world right now, and my sister put this on her notes that she sent me, very organized person. She said something she liked that I said one time. So I'm going to say it again today. Um, now I forgot because I was mentioning it. But um, what, you know what? No, I have it on my phone. So I'm going to pull it out right now. But this is something that, I believe with all my heart here. Oh, here it is. People are strong to share their opinion, but weak to share the truth. And that's something that I believe because I see, I don't, I'm not, I don't know if I'm friends with y'all on Facebook. It is so bright up here. I can't see anybody, but I uh, think that a lot of times I look around the world and, and people share all their thoughts on wearing masks. Um, they share all their opinions on everything from, sexuality to religion to racism to politics and they share it with such a passion and such a a uh, conviction but when it comes to an absolute truth in Christ and, and a never changing God and a never changing word they don't have that same conviction that same passion that same determination and I'm convinced it's because they don't know what they have and if you know what you have, you're much more likely. And if you know the bad news and the bad, 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 bad news, I, I don't ever like to share Jesus without saying, look, there's a good news. But if you don't understand how bad the bad news is and how Jesus and how God, they're going to punish all of sin. And it's going to get real bad. It's going to get real nasty. It's going to be real rough on all those who didn't believe. But you have this grace. That good news is such a motivating factor to me. 
Because when I see this and I realize I didn't deserve it, I couldn't earn it, it was given to me by grace, and I'm part of a promised kingdom, and I'm part of a relationship with God, that's the trajectory that pushes me in my life to do more. To love more, to serve more, to give more, to care more. And so I just hope everyone, you can look at it and ask yourself, have I ever asked myself or have I ever looked in the mirror and said that if I'm part of this unshakable kingdom, is my faith unshakable too? Because if there's not, there's a disconnect and there's a bridge that you need to build to cross over to get to the point where you're living and breathing the life of a soldier. We have a lot of people who become saints. They don't ever become soldiers. And I would love to see more of us going out there every single day because I'll be 110% honest with you. And this may sound crazy. Coming up here today and talking to you guys is easy because it's what you expect me to do. None of you expected me to come up here today and talk to you about how I love to play golf. None of you expected me today to come talk to you about the Dallas Cowboys. Every single one of you expected I was going to come up here and talk about God. But when you go to work on Monday, no one's expecting you to be a soldier. So if you cower off on the sideline, no one really cares. But to go in there every single day, you're going to have to be rooted in something. And and it can't be yourself. But the more you know what you're rooted in, the more you're able to serve, the more you're able to love. And you become an unshakable person in an unshakable kingdom. And that's all I have for you guys. I I end stuff real abruptly. But I love you all. I hope you guys have a good rest of your day today. Um, Think about your life. Think about what Christ has done for you. And, uh, you know, give it your best effort. Give it 110%. Yeah, y'all imagine having him as a brother. It's been a wild life I've had. It's been fun. Yes. The one thing I love about Jacob, what you see up here is where he's like this all the time. He never changes. I want to be more like Jacob because he's, no, that's not for you. Because uh, he, he's always the same person at home with my mom. With He's always the same. So, yeah, come on. Okay, unshakable God, unshakable kingdom. Man, let's be encouraged. The rest of our speakers are going to solidify. Okay, now that we really know that God and his kingdom and his truth are the end-all, be-all, then what do we now do stepping into that? Okay, so we're going we're gonna to hear from them later about how we can have unshakable courage, unshakable leadership, unshakable dreams. Um, and just, just go further from there so that we can now live out what Jacob has challenged us to do. All right, ladies, I know we're having some good conversation and ate more donuts, but it's now time to hear from sweet, sweet Heather. So I, I don't exaggerate when I say that Heather's one of the sweetest people I've ever met. She's like such a beautiful contrast to Jacob's like, <laughs> to like, ah, it's, it's going to be sweet. Uh, so Heather's married to um, Landon, our um, administrative pastor, and she works at Sagu. So she is a teacher. Um, and so you're, I just love about Heather. She's so intelligent. Like she thinks on a very unique level. So you're going to get some insight into the life of Deborah that you probably have never thought about before. Okay. So we're going to hear about Deborah and learn how we can have unshakable leadership. So here's Heather guys. Thanks Amanda. (laughs) 
such an introduction. Next time you have to undersell me. <laughs> um, well, I am so excited to be here today. Um, speaking in front of large amounts of adults is not my natural forte, so a little bit of grace. But, uh, but I really am excited. And um, when I picked Deborah to talk about, I have been reading and praying and uh, just learning so much about this woman and her life and about the context, the whole book of Judges. Judges is crazy, y'all. So um, I have just been uh, totally nerding out, and I'm so excited to share a little bit about what we've learned today. So um, I, uh, like I said, I'm going to talk today about leadership. That's actually a topic I'm not, like, super comfortable with. It makes me feel kind of, like, squirmy, like, leading things. Like, I'm not a natural, like, take charge kind of gal. Who are my take charge people out here? Are there some? Yes, y'all make the world go round. Go, you guys. Yeah. (laughs) But, you know, there's more than one type of leadership, right? Like, um, it's a really, really broad concept. It's a lot more than just bossing people around. So, Leadership can look like chairing a committee or pastoring a church, but leadership can also be a lot more subtle, and it can look like guiding a child or being a mentor one-on-one, right? So it doesn't have to just be the super aggressive stuff, although I love and admire that so very much. Um, So studying good leaders and learning about their character and skills is a great way for all of us uh, to develop leadership within ourselves. So the bold to the meek, we all have an inner leadership traits, and we all have things that we can learn from the leaders around us. And today we're going to look at a pretty cool leader. Um, This is somebody that commanded generals, led an entire country to victory, and someone that also wisely solved disputes and her name was Deborah. So today we're going to be looking at the book of Judges, if you're the type of person that wants to go ahead and turn there. We're going to be specifically looking at Judges chapter 4 and 5. Okay, so just like Jacob said, anytime that you look at the Bible, you always want to look at the context within uh, that the verses or chapters that you're reading were written in. Context is always super important. So before we look exactly at Deborah, I want to zoom out a little bit and look at the entire book of Judges. All right, so the book of Judges outlines a really tumultuous time for Israel. So the Israel, they were delivered from Egypt. You remember that? Parting the Red Sea. Woo. And then, like, after a very long debacle, they finally made it to the promised land. And um, when they made it to the promised land, they lived happily ever, ever, ever after, right? <laughs> no, because they're people. <laughs> so, um, of course they didn't. Uh, the people of Israel were... Um, Uh, the post-promised land time, it was a rough time, and Judges kind of outlines that. The people of Israel were caught in this cycle. So they would sin and mess up really bad, and then things would get terrible and awful, and they'd cry out to God to be delivered. God would deliver them, and then they would sin, and then things would get really bad, and they would cry out to God to be delivered. Round and round and round it goes for this entire book of the Bible. Um, I remember uh, I used to teach little kids, like uh, first and third grade, and I remember you'd always have these kids that just like wormed their way into your heart. You loved them so much, but they just did not make good choices, you know? And so I remember being like, child of mine, like, remember the last time you did this? And remember how it didn't go well? And remember how much trouble you got in when you went home to your mom? Why did you make the same choice again? And I think anybody that has parented or worked with kids, big and little, has that same sentiment, is probably very familiar with it. That whole, like, 
it doesn't have to be this way. Like it could, it could be really easy if you would just follow the rules. And so I think that's how God felt about Israel. Um, my daughter, who is very strong-willed, has a scar like right here on her forearm. And if you ask her what that scar is from, she'll tell you straight up. My mom said not to touch the stove, and I did it anyway. <laughs> and so she has a scar to tell the story. Well, Israel kept touching the stove, guys, and they kept getting burned again and again. And they'd say, God, we need a Band-Aid. And because, like, we serve God, he gave them boxes and boxes and boxes of Band-Aids because he loves his children, and he wants to help them out. And, you know, because he's a cool God, he probably got, like, the fun ones with, like, stars and hearts. <laughs> like, I buy the boring brown ones for my kids, and they're a little bit. So, um, so yeah, so that's, that's what's going on in the book of Judges, this constant cycle of sin, repentance, deliverance, sin, repentance, deliverance. So in that story, in that time, uh, in the middle of all this madness, we find the woman I'm going to speak to you about today. We see her story in chapters four and five in the book of Judges. Deborah was a judge and a prophetess. Fun fact, she was the only one of the judges to be both of those things. So that's kind of cool. So during this time, judges were the leaders over the entire people of Israel. These guys were the top dogs. They were the ruler, the military leader, and they were the final word when it came to solving disputes. So being a judge is not a job you could inherit, so you weren't judged because your daddy was. Being a judge was a job that you were chosen to do by God. So, now that we know the big, like, what a judge is and the whole, like, what was going on in the book of Judges, let's talk specifically about Deborah. Here is the Heather summary of her story. If you want the word for word, it's chapters 4 and 5. It's not very long to read. But here's the summary. Because Israel had messed up and done evil in the eyes of the Lord, again, they were currently oppressed by a super bad dude named Sisera. And Cicero was able to keep everyone under his thumb because he had 900 chariots and no one else did. So um, Israel did not like being oppressed by this chariot-having loser. So they once again cried out to God for deliverance. God heard their cries and rose up Deborah as a leader of Israel. One day she sent for the military general, Barak, and she informed him of God's plan for delivering Israel from Sisera and and his imposing army of chariots. And here's how that meeting went. I'm going to read directly from Judges chapter 4, verses 6 through 10. So, chapter 6. She sent for Barak. Oh, disclaimer. Y'all know how it is reading from the Old Testament, right? So, these are the Heather versions of... uh, pronouncing names. So if you know it differently, this is, I'm just doing my best. Okay. (laughs) All right. Um, verse six, here we go. She sent for Barak, son of Abinom from Kadesh in Naphtali and said to him, the Lord, the God of Israel commands you go with you and take 10,000 men of Naphtali and Zebulun and lead the way to Mount Tabor. I will lure Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River and give him into your hands. Barak said to her, if you go with me, I will go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. Very well, Deborah said, I will go with you. But because of the way that you are going about this, the honor will not be yours, for the Lord will hand Sisera over to a woman. So Deborah went with Barak to Kadesh, where he summoned... Zebulun and Naphtali, 10,000 men follow him, and Deborah also went with him. 
A lot happened there. Let's break it down. Okay, so, so Deborah tells Barack God's plan, and he's all like, did y'all catch up? Well, I'll go if you'll go, like, like they're girls going to the mall or something, you know, <laughs> but, um, but Deborah said, fine, I'll totally go with you. So despite the fact that Barack had kind of shaky faith in God and his plan, Deborah ensured that there would still be a victory, and we're going to talk more about that later. The rest of chapter 4 details the supernatural victory of the Israelites over their enemy. Those uh, shiny and imposing Sisera chariots stood no chance against our all-powerful and all-knowing God. <laughs> and all the bad guys were killed, and the leader Sisera met an especially gruesome death by the hands of a woman, just like Deborah said she would, because we know you don't mess with an angry woman, right? Yeah. <laughs> So you can read about exactly what happened to Sisera in chapter 4. So there's a lot going on. It's a short story, but it's packed with a lot of nuance. So today I'm going to talk to you about four lessons that we can learn from Deborah and from her unshakable leadership. All right? First things first. Deborah accepted her role of leadership. Um, beyond knowing that she was chosen by God, we don't know exactly how Deborah came into the position of power. Like, we don't know the details and the steps along the way. We only know that she was, in fact, a judge and a prophetess. As a judge, Deborah was in charge of an entire people. And we know from her story that she not only resolved disputes, but she commanded war generals. That's a lot of power, y'all. That's a lot of responsibility. So the Bible does not give us details about Deborah's pre-judge life, but we do know a little bit about her that we can infer from what we are given. First off, we know that Deborah was a wife. Deborah was married to Lapidoth. Um, we'll go with that pronunciation. Um, now, so she, we know she was a married woman. Now, the marriage dynamic, we know, varies greatly from marriage to marriage. So responsibilities, who does what within a marriage, varies greatly. But the one constant thing about marriage is that it's hard work. It takes a lot of commitment. It takes a lot of, um, of work and a lot of energy and a lot of time and a lot of compromise. So um, we know that Deborah, as a married woman, had a lot going on um, and that she added her responsibilities of a judge to her responsibilities of already being a wife. The second thing we can probably infer about Deborah is she could have been a mom. So based on the um, societal standards of the day, even though the Bible doesn't specifically say if she had kids, most likely she did. Um, and if anybody has ever like helped raise children or actually raised children or like been around like a herd of children, you know that it's like a lot of work, right? So, <laughs> so it's possible that she was a wife and also a mom and trying to like raise kids without a washing machine. So she probably had a lot going on there, right? So, <laughs> um, but here's the thing. Even if she wasn't a wife and even if she wasn't a mom, Deborah was a person. So no matter where you guys are in your um, walk of life, if you're married or single, if you have no kids or you have five kids, or if you work full-time or part-time or if you're a stay-at-home mom, the one thing that we all have in common is life is crazy busy and we all have a lot to do right? So um, I don't, there might be some bored people out there, like shout out to you guys, that's awesome. But most of us have a ton going on. And most of us wear a lot of different hats, no matter where we are, no matter where we are in our walk. So um, here's the thing, most of us will be faced with an opportunity to lead at some point in our lives. And true leadership is going to cost us something. 
Okay? At the very least, it's going to cost us time. It's going to cost us some of that precious time that we have between working and living. Um, it takes a lot of work on our part to discover God's will for our lives, something we have to constantly work at. And then it takes even more work after we've discovered his will to follow the plan that he has for us. It means making daily choices to spend time in prayer and reading his word and seeking his wisdom. When God opens a door for us to walk through, we have to make an active choice to step through that doorway. Deborah was called to the role of judge, and she accepted that role despite everything else she had going on. Okay? So that's the first thing we can learn. The first thing Deborah did was accept her role of leadership. The second thing is that Deborah knew how she led best. The Bible tells us that Deborah held court under a palm tree. This is significant for a couple of reasons. First, previous judges and leaders held court at the city gates. This was a big, imposing place to hold court and listen to people's grievances. It was very public and very open. Um, Deborah, by holding court under a palm tree, created a much more intimate and less imposing setting for people to air their grievances and for her to pass judgment on them. So that's really a really important difference. She was not trying to be like previous leaders. She was true to herself and knew how she served best. I think this is a huge component for all of us as we learn and grow in Christian learn and grow as Christians. Each one of us has a different strength and skill sets than the others, and we can't try to do things the way they were previously done. We have to do things in the way that we were gifted to do them. And, uh, and we can't get caught up in that comparison trap. So, um, like, and I actually, like, I speak to myself a little bit, because I was listening to Jacob, and he's, like, so, like, yeah, like, yeah, like, the truth, like, you know, like, and, um, and I, like, and I love that and admire that, and I was, like, oh, but that's not who I am at all, um, but, so I'll speak to myself and say, I can't come up here and try to be an awesome speaker like Jacob, I have to try to be the best speaker that Heather can be, and that's, and that, uh, principle applies to all of you guys as well. Um, so, and this is why it's so important that we realize the vastly different ways that we can all lead and serve. We live in a society that rewards, like, the big and the grand, and that gives praise and recognition to the loud and the mighty. And there is a place for the fierce warrior. I want to make that really clear. We need y'all. Um, but there, but you are not less than if you are quiet. And you are not less if you lead in a way that's not seen. Being self-aware of who you are in Christ is an important part of growing in Christian. as a Christian. Take time to explore who you are and to learn about yourself. Are you the type of leader that holds court in a vast room filled with spectators? Then rock on. You do you. You make that, you fill that room with fire and confidence. But if you're more of the kind of person that holds that's more comfortable holding court under a tree with a quiet one-on-one -on -one conversation, please know that that is powerful too. All right? So we know that Deborah accepted her role, and we know that she was aware of how she led best. Thirdly, we learn from this passage that Deborah led as part of a team. Deborah knew that being a good leader is knowing that you don't have to do everything yourself. <laughs> so uh, God gave Deborah a vision about how to be victorious against an enemy, but that did not mean that she had to do everything herself. Just because God gave her this vision of victory didn't mean that she, like, strapped on a sword and was like, come on, guys, let's go. No, she uh, worked, she had a powerful general at her side, a man that was comfortable and experienced leading men into battle. 
When Barak asked her to go with him, she went. She could have been like, nah, man. Like, you know, like a bunch, have y'all ever been like around like a bunch of like sweaty men? It stinks. So like, <laughs> she could have been like, I don't want to go hang out in some battle camp with a bunch of sweaty dude bros. Like, no. But you know what? Um, she did it. <laughs> and, um, and she did go. She took the time and the effort to support Barack with her presence when he needed her there. And this lesson works two ways. One, we cannot do everything ourselves. Like, seriously, don't try to be an island. Your ability to lead will grow exponentially when you work as part of a team. And in my experience, people generally love asking to help. Like, when you, when they, um, when you ask someone to help them, they usually really like it and they're really eager to do it. I think there's this, um, this, like, vast underutilized resource of, um, we'll say women specifically, but people that um, are eager to do something, but they don't know quite what to do, and they're just waiting to be invited. So um, if you have a big task ahead of you, be sure to, to pull people in. Um, two, it's important to have a support system that you can trust. Sometimes we will have the surety and faith of Deborah, and sometimes we're going to need a little extra support like Barack. So um, in the seasons where we need extra support and in the seasons when we are sure, we need to be sure that those people that we're inviting to come and serve alongside us are people that we can trust um, and people that will be there through the good times and through the bad. Good leaders know how to create a strong team around them, and they are also aware of the needs of others and give extra support when necessary. All right. So she accepted her role. She knew how she led best. She led as part of a team. Lastly today, Deborah praised the Lord and gave him credit for the victory. This is a big one. Um, in this room before me, in this crowd, I know for a fact there are people that have experienced amazing victories, right? So raise your hand if you have experienced a victory from the Lord. Woo, yeah. Like, so the one thing that's sure about life is it's going to be tough. And uh, the other thing that's sure about life is God is going to be there with us through the tough times and he will raise us out. So some people today might be on the mountaintop and some people might be on the valley. Some people might be like hanging on the side. But wherever they are, we have all experienced that amazing victory in Christ. Um, we have fought a battle and we have overcome. Um, and uh, many of those battles that we have overcome were only overcome with the supernatural intervention of our God. Right. So it's so important that we don't forget to give credit to our victories to whom it belongs. Okay. After the battle was over and the enemy was defeated, Deborah was sure to praise her God. So if you read Judges chapter 5, it's actually a poem or a song. So chapter 4 is prose. It's written like a narrative, like a story. Chapter 5 is written like a song, and it probably rhymes really pretty in its original language. But even in English, it has a really cool flow to it if you read it out loud. So this song, it, it recounts the events of what happened from the beginning to the end, and it's sure to put the victory, the credit for the victory squarely where it belongs. Um, and it documents the power of God. So 
Um, we have more in common with the people of um, Israel than we like to think. Uh, because I know sometimes we're like, oh, Israel, you're so silly. You did it again. Like, you literally saw a pillar of fire and then, like, a few weeks later made a calf out of earrings. Like, silly, silly. <laughs> right? But um, the fact is, like, it should, like, we can, like, turn that around real fast. And that can be us as well. We can have short memories. And we can be quick to forget previous victories and lessons. So um, I'm not saying that we have to keep written records all the time. Although I do think that's a good idea. Um, I know there's a lot of people that have the discipline to keep like prayer journals and things and those can be super powerful. Um, And uh, some people will like, you know, keep track of answered prayers and that kind of thing. Um, So it doesn't really, it doesn't have to be that way. That's just one way. But I do think it's important that we note our victories and to be sure that we don't get so caught up in the relief of a victorious battle that we forget to praise the one who gave that victory to us. Okay. So um, there's a lot of different ways to make note of our victories. Um, You could do a small note in the margin of your Bible. I love writing inside books. Um, You could keep a journal or a diary or even Facebook posts or Instagram. Because what's cool about those is they come back a year later. I don't know if anybody has ever had like a like memory show up on Facebook and you're like, that did happen. Like, and you're so it gives you an opportunity to remember. So that kind of has like built in reminders if you use social media for it. But uh, The method isn't as important as taking time to uh, praise God and to give him the victory. Um, Whatever, what matters is that we praise God for all of our victories, our past victories, our present victories, and our future victories that are here to come. All right. So um, as we wrap things up today, we're going to have time for discussion just like we did with after Jacob. Um, And as you answer the questions that you're going to be given, I want you to think about Deborah and the type of leader that she was. She answered God's call um, to lead. Sorry, I skipped over his part. She, Deborah accepted the role of leadership when it came to her. She followed God's plan for her life, even though that meant some type of sacrifice. She answered God's call to lead thousands and to bring victory and peace through her unshakable leadership to the country of Israel. She knew herself as a leader, and she knew how she led best. She wasn't trying to be someone that she was not or trying to copy previous leaders. And lastly, Deborah was a supportive leader, and she did not hesitate to praise God for his victories. Aren't you guys glad that we serve a victorious God? Yeah. Me too. So, um, Amanda, if you want to come up, that's what I have today. But um, thank you guys so much for giving me the opportunity to share. And I hope you learned something alongside me. (laughs) Yes, thank you, Heather. That was so good. I told you all she's, like, so sweet. And I learned something new about Deborah. So, and I'm going to work on being an awesome leader. Uh, Okay, so we have lots of time for you to talk about your next questions at your table. We still have coffee. We still have donuts, okay? So if you want another donut. Um, We're called to be Christ-like and to lead others to him. So what are some ways you can influence or impact others for the kingdom? Okay, so that falls under our leadership, under those gifts and talents that we've been given. In what way have you trusted the Lord's leadership and seen victory in your life. So if you've had something really cool, share with your group. Encourage others. As Heather said, some of us are on the mountain. Some of us are like, ooh, I'm struggling right now. So if you have something you can share, share it. What lessons did you learn that you can take with you into the next season? So Miss Lewis is coming. I call her Miss Lewis still because I've noticed since I was five years old. But 
Pastor Pam, uh, and she has been working for this church as the children's pastor for a very long time. If anybody, if anybody is consistent and faithful, it's this woman right here, okay? Uh, and she's the one that pours into all of your kiddos. She taught me all of the basic bi- biblical principles, and so I am very grateful. She is a teacher, so I'm a fan of the teachers always. And she's got three g- grown kiddos and a grandbaby on the way. Yeah! So we're excited about that. And yes, you're going to be blessed, everyone. So now we're going to be looking at how to have unshakable courage and looking specifically at Esther. Thank you, Amanda. I actually, um, I was looking back and when Amanda asked me to do this, I think nobody but Amanda would have said yes. She's the only one. I sat there and I looked at that message on my phone. I was like, she wants me to speak in front of adults and women at that. But, um, and then, so then I chose Esther and I was like, courage. Well, you know what? It takes some courage to get up here. But I also, I knew when she asked me, I actually didn't even, I didn't even hesitate. As soon as I saw her message, I messaged her back and said, for you and for all the things you've done for me over the years, yes, I will do this. So, yes. But um, I also know that the only reason I had the courage to get up here is at the beginning of 2020, um, I decided that instead of just reading my Bible, you should do that, but instead of just reading my Bible, I wanted to truly study God's Word. And so I brought two of my favorites. The very first one I started with was Priscilla Schreier's Awaken. If you have not done this, it is awesome. And it's a great way to start because it's not... Uh, it's deep, but not too deep. You can do it in a day. I mean, not a day, of course. It's a daily, but you do it in just, you know, a few minutes before you leave for work. If you're like me, you don't have a whole lot of time. And it was a good place for me to start. Now, I chose Esther because at the time, Trina and I were doing the Bible study, Esther by Beth Moore. And if you have not done this, and you think you know Esther, you don't know Esther. And if it's been a while since you've done it, you should do it. So, but, um, so when she told me I could do Esther, I was like, okay, well, yeah, that I can do. Cause I know something about Esther, but I actually didn't really know that much until I did that Bible study. So, but how many of you ever wanted to be a princess? Come on, be honest. Get that hand in the air. I know you did. So for a moment I get to be a princess. I actually bought this, um, after we'd finished the Bible study so we could watch one night with the king. And um, I had my crown on. Trina did too. So, because you know, who wants to, we all want to be a princess. Maybe you pretended your dolls, your stuffed animals, you know, they were your subjects. You ruled over them. Okay, who watched Cinderella, Snow White, Sleeping Beauty? Really? Just those young ones? Really? Well, actually, I don't remember watching her as much either until I got a little older and I had kids. But, I mean, you clean house, you know, somebody else is doing it for you. Somebody is washing your dishes for you. Somebody's making your bed for you. You know, I remember the fairy tale wedding of the century when Prince, the Prince of England proposed to that shy, ordinary kindergarten aide and made her Princess of Wales, the future Queen of England. I have a whole scrapbook full of all those pieces from Prince, Princess Diana and Prince Charles. It's, uh, yeah, it's somewhere in my garage, but like I cut out everything. It was just, you know, and then he had a younger brother. Yeah. 
I mean, surely you could come to America and notice me somewhere. I don't know, you know, whatever. But for those of you that don't remember Prince Charles and Princess Diana, maybe you remember um, Princess Diaries, Princess Mia. Yes, I actually do too. You know, how exciting would it be to wake up one morning and find out that, you know, you're a princess about to be the queen of a whole country. And, you know, your dad was a prince and now it's you. And now you have a limo, you have someone driving you around, you have servants at your beck and call, you don't have to make your bed anymore, although Mia's mom did make her, you know, do her chores and stuff too. I mean, it's a dream come true. Well, that's Esther. You know, that young Jewish girl who kept her nationality hidden and she won the king's favor, became the king of the entire Persian empire. How many want that dream? Anybody? Really? Just me? Okay, well, it's my dream. I'm living it. So, but before we get to Esther's fairy tale, we need to move back to see what's going on. So in Esther 1, chapter, chapter 1, verse 10, it starts with a party. How many of y'all like to party? Yeah. This party had been going on for six months. And now this is the next party that's going on, and it's been going on for a whole week. So the king, high on the wine, ordered the seven eunuchs who were his personal servants, and they list all the names, and I'm going to be like Heather, I, I can't pronounce them, so, you know, to bring him Queen Vashti resplendent in her royal crown. He wanted to show off her beauty to the guests and officials because she was extremely good looking. I like how the message puts stuff. But Queen Vashti refused to come, refused the summons delivered by the eunuchs, and the king lost his temper. Seething with anger over her insolence, the king called in his counselors, all experts in legal matters. It was the king's practice to consult his expert advisors. Those closest to him were Carcius, Shetha, Admatha, Tarshish, Maris, Marcina, and the one I do know, Mamukin, the seven highest-ranking princes of Persia and Medea, the inner circle with access to the king's ear. He asked them what legal recourse legal recourse, they had against Queen Vashti for not obeying King Xerxes' summons delivered by the eunuchs. He's all mad because she said, no. Just because she refused to come in to his party that had been going on for six months and seven days, can you imagine? Like the wine was flowing, all men in the room, I'm with Heather, stinky. Yeah. Okay, well, this is King Xerxes, also known as Assyrus, and he was the ruler of the Persian Empire, largest empire at that time, but Greece is starting to give him a run for his money. Xerxes was the son of King Darius, Daniel's King Darius, lion's den. Xerxes was the son and grandson, grandson of uh, Cyrus, and he was from a line of warriors. He was not a warrior. He had been given everything. And now he's having a difficult time proving himself. He can't control his empire. He can't control his home. He's mad. King Xerxes was very confused. I mean, why would she not come? So he asked his men, instead of going to his wife, he asked his men, what do I do about this? These are his wise men. Esther 1.16 tells us, Mamukin, I don't think he was married, spoke up in the council of the king and princes, It's not only the king, Queen Vashti, is insulted. It's all of us. Leaders and people alike in every last one of King Xerxes' provinces. The word's going to get out. Did you hear the latest about Queen Vashti? King Xerxes ordered her to be brought before him, and she wouldn't do it. When the women hear it, they'll start treating their husbands with contempt. 
the day the wives of the Persian and Medes officials get wind of the queen's brazenness, they'll be out of control, ladies. Is that what we want? A country of angry women who don't know their place? This is, a, this is you know, a time when it was ruled by men anyway. So if the king agrees, let him pronounce a royal ruling and have it recorded in the laws of the Persians and the Medes that it cannot be revoked, that Vashti is permanently banned from King Xerxes' presence. And then let the king give her royal position to a woman who knows her place. When the king's ruling became public knowledge throughout the kingdom, extensive as it is, every woman, regardless of her social position, will show proper respect to her husband. Yeah. The queen of the Persian empire had just been removed from her throne because she t- said, no, I'm not going to join the party. I, I was brought up being told that, well, it's because he wanted her to come with nothing but her crown on. Um, as we did more research in the Bible study, there were several reasons why, and all of it made perfect sense. But for whatever the reason, it wasn't her place to go, and she said no. And he listened to the counsel of very unwise men, and had her banished. And then all the other women have now come into subjection instead of biblical submission. Of course, we're talking the Medes and the Persians who worshipped other gods anyways. So then we fast forward a little bit, and King Xerxes has gone off to war against Greece, and he got beat. He suffered naval, suffered naval defeat at Salamis and was unsuccessful in taking over Plataea. I just said that wrong. I've looked that up and read it over and over. He had no victory under his belt, and now he was home again, licking his wounds and thinking, maybe I was just a little too hasty in my decision here. He's starting to miss Queen Vashti. She's been gone for four years. His temper tantrum cost him greatly. So now his servants step in, you know, the guys that hang out with him all the time, and they're always taking care of him. And so they step in with their suggestion about what he should do about this. They suggest that all the beautiful young women, young virgin girls, be rounded up, given a year of beauty treatments, because they weren't beautiful enough already, and he gets to choose. So Esther 2.4 tells us, they said, then let the girl who best pleases the king be made queen in place of Vashti. And the queen liked that advice. He thought that's a great idea. I mean, who wouldn't? All these women coming before you, you just get to take your pick. So finally, here comes our heroine, Esther. She arrives on the scene. And the Bible doesn't give us a whole lot of information about her. And yet, we can learn a lot from her and about her. The royal edict says to round up all the young, beautiful virgin girls. Well, we know she was young. We know she was beautiful. We know she was a virgin. Knowing that most girls at that time were married off when they were like 13, 14. She was probably about 14 when this happened. He was 36. That's just gross. (laughs) I can see my daughter down there going, oh. So the Bible doesn't tell us if she went willingly or if she was forced to go. But regardless, it was a royal edict. So she has no choice. She has to go. We also know that Esther was an orphan being raised by a male cousin, Mordecai. We don't know how young, but according to Jewish tradition, she was orphaned at birth. And she was taken in by Mordecai, her only really living relative, male, single, bachelor, girl. She doesn't have any real female influence around her, but yet she was obedient. When Mordecai told her to hide her Jewish heritage, she did. When he told her to change her name from Hadassah, her Jewish name, to Esther, the Babylonian name. She did it. 
Why Mordecai wanted her to do that doesn't tell us. I'm assuming probably, you know, even though the Jews and the um, people of Susa got along pretty well, there's probably still some kind of a stigma to be Jewish. We know that her and Mordecai cared for each other greatly. He went outside the gate every day to check on her when she was taken into the harem. We know that she had a kind spirit in a way with people. The Bible says she found favor with Haggai, who was overseeing the beauty treatments. He gave her seven attendants. I'm on board for that one. The best of the food and the best of the beauty treatments. She had a way with people. The girl may have been a young orphan girl raised by a man, but she knew how to be kind and how to please and serve others. Instead of becoming bitter because she was an orphan, becoming angry because she had been taken from her own home, sitting around and pouting and mourning about the position she now found herself in, she instead chose to be a pleasure to be around. That took courage. We're talking young, and that took courage. You may have to think about how many of us would be pleasant to be around if our world had been turned upside down the way hers had. We all have things in our past, in our present, they give us reason to mourn or hurt. But it's our choice if we're going to be bitter or if we're going to be pleasant. It takes courage to choose pleasant, and Esther had that courage. So now Esther finds herself in a palace surrounded by people she doesn't know, with an unknown future facing her. She is told that she has been taken because she's beautiful, but yet she has to go for 12 months of beauty treatments. That may not have been quite so bad. She had been given the best of the food, the houses, the servants, the treatments. But in exchange for all this, she would never go home again. She had to live in that palace for the rest of her life. Whether he chose her or not, she had to stay. She would never get to go back with Mordecai. If he did not choose her, she would never have a chance to marry anyone else. Never have a chance to have a family. She belongs now to the king. And will never be allowed to leave that palace. And yet Esther still has the courage to be a pleasure to those around her. Again, she chose, she could have chosen to be bitter, but she chose to be a pleasure. She had the courage to face whatever lies ahead of her and to be pleasant. I'm not so sure I could have done that. After a year of beauty treatments, it's finally time. Twelve months. Okay, now this part might not have been so bad. Twelve months, you know, you know, just being laying out and, you know, the, the oils and, you know, and having somebody, you know, do your face massages, you know, and your, your masseuse, right? So now it's time. So Esther 2.14 tells us, when it was time for the girl to go to the king, she was given whatever she wanted to take. She could take with her when she, whatever she wanted to take with her when she left the harem for the king's quarters. She would go there in the evening. And in the morning, she would return to a second harem overseen by Shazgaz, the king's eunuch in charge of the concubines. She never again went back to the king unless the king took a special liking to her and asked for her by name. These girls went in and they went out. And if they didn't make an impression on the king when they were in, they were out for good. But they didn't get to go back home again. They had to go stay with the harem in a life of luxury and loneliness. The one consolation everyone had was that she could take anything from the royal treasury that she wanted. Can you imagine those girls walking in? I mean, you're told, okay, well, if you don't make an impression on the king, you're going to go live here. You can have whatever you want to take with you. That's all you get. Can you imagine what they got? I mean, gold, cloth, silks, jewelry. 
I mean, how it would be hard not to be selfish in that moment. They could take whatever they wanted, and they did, until it's Esther's turn. When it's Esther's turn, we see another quality of her character. In Esther 2.15, it tells us, when it was Esther's turn to go to the king, she asked for nothing other than what Haggai, the king's eunuch, in charge of the harem, had recommended. Esther, just as she was, won the admiration of everyone who saw her. She had the courage to be unselfish and humble. She also had the courage to ask for help. Yeah, I have a hard time with that one. To ask for help from the one person who might actually know the king and what he liked. It doesn't tell us what she took. It just tells us that she took what Haggai told her and very simply went before the king. Esther 2.17 tells us how that decision paid off. The king fell in love with Esther far more than any with any of his other women or any of the other virgins. He was totally smitten with her. He placed a royal crown on her head and made her queen in place of Vashti. Esther was no longer the little orphan girl. She was now queen of Persia, the largest kingdom in the ancient world, and everything was at her fingertips. Life could not be any better for this sweet, deserving girl. But just like our lives today, everything's not perfect all day long, every day. There will always be problems and pressures. We see people on social media and their life looks great and grand. But that's through the filter. Even our beloved Queen Esther, things are not absolutely perfect. We're going to leave Esther for just a moment, though. And we're going to go see the other characters in her story. So first we have Mordecai, her cousin. He served at the king's gate. He just sat there every day. I don't know exactly what that means, but he sat there every day. And as he's sitting there every day, he hears a plot by two of the king's guards. And they're angry. And they decide they're going to get rid of the king. So Mordecai hears it, reports it to Esther. Esther reports to the king. The king checks it out. Finds out it's true. They're hanged. Everything's marked down in the chronicles of the king. And that's all that happens. Mordecai has just saved the king's life and nothing happens. Then we get to our next character, Haman the Agite. He had been elevated to second in command by King Xerxes. Now the Agites were longtime enemies of the Jews. If you go back to 1 Samuel 15, King Saul had gone to war against the Amalekites, King Agag, and God had given specific orders that everything was to be destroyed. Peoples, animals, nothing. Why would God say that? Well, let's go back to Deuteronomy. I love how the Bible goes like that. Deuteronomy 25, 17. God says, don't forget what Amalekic did to you on the road before after you left Egypt. How he attacked you when you were tired, barely able to put one foot in front of the other. Mercilessly cutting off your stragglers and had no regard for God. When God, your God, gives you rest from all the enemies that surround you in the inheritance land, God, your God, is giving you to possess You are to wipe out the name of the Amalekite from off the earth. Don't forget. The enemy goes all the way back to the exodus out of Egypt. The Amalekites attacked the Jews on their way to the promised land, and God promised they would eventually pay for their misdeeds. Now we're in 1 Samuel 15, and we find that Saul has defeated the Amalekite king Agag. But instead of killing the king and destroying everything like he had been told to do, he made his own decision. Samuel confronts him, and Saul defends himself in 1 Samuel fifteen twenty. 
Saul says, Why, what are you talking about? I did obey God. I did the job God set for me. I brought in King Agag, Agag and destroyed the Amalekites under the terms of the holy man. So the soldiers saved a little bit of the you know, choice sheep and cattle from the holy man. It was a sacrifice for God. What's wrong with that? Well, that's not what God asked. God said, destroy them all, everything. But Saul decided that he knew better than God and he did not complete his task. And now we're at Queen Esther. And that decision is about to cost his people their lives. Haman has been promoted to second in command in the Persian kingdom. He is shrewd. He is cunning. He is a liar. He is bitter. He is arrogant. And he is controlling. That is a scary combination in a leader. His arrogance in his position leads him to believe that everyone should bow before him. And so Mordecai does not. Mordecai says, I'm a Jew. I'm not bowing before him. Haman, like the king, is furious. Mordecai has just set into motion the events that are going to change history. Haman realizes that Mordecai is a Jew, and he decides he's going to finish off what was started way back in Exodus. He is going to annihilate the Jews once and for all. So this cunning man goes to King Xerxes and suggests to the king that there is a group of people living in his kingdom who refuse to obey the laws of the land. They're troublemakers for the empire, and they need to be gotten rid of. King Xerxes is like, okay, sounds good to me. Haman also conveniently offers King Xerxes a tidy sum to put in his treasury that has been slowly depleted by all of his wars that he has not done well in. King Xerxes gives Haman his signet ring and tells him to do whatever he wants. Haman's ecstatic. He has got all the power. And he's going to get rid of his enemy. And he's going to get rid of Mordecai. All at the same time. Esther 3.13 tells us bulletins were sent out by couriers to all the king's provinces with orders to massacre, kill, and eliminate all the Jews. Youngsters, men, women, old, young, babies, nobody was to be left. On a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and they were to plunder their goods. Copies of the bulletins were to be posted in every province, publicly available to all peoples to get them ready for that one day. He's not just satisfied with taking their possessions. He's not satisfied with just taking out the men, the warriors. He plans to annihilate everyone. Hitler tried it in World War II. Pharaoh tried it back in Egypt. These are God's people. Now, precious Esther, she's enjoying her life as a queen. She's led this life of luxury for a few years. She has no idea what's happening. I think I've done that as well. I get so caught up in my own life that I forget all that's going on around me. Somebody comes to her and says, hey, Mordecai, he, he's outside the king's gate and he is filthy. He has, has ashes. He is in rags. Something's up. And so Esther, she's appalled. She's clueless about what's going on. So she sends clothes out to Mordecai and asks him to get dressed. And Mordecai says, no. He tells Hathik, Esther's attendant, all that is happening and gives him a copy of the edict to show her proof, hard evidence, and to tell her that she must go before the king to implore his favor and to plead with him for her people. Hathik tells Esther everything, and she sends a reply back to Mordecai that she thinks is going to be good enough. Esther 4.9 tells us, she says, everyone who works for the king here and even the people out in the provinces knows that there is a single fate for every man or woman who approaches the king without being invited. 
death. The one exception is if the king extends his gold scepter that he or she may live. It's been 30 days since the king has called for me. 30 days. Poor Esther is in a dilemma. She has been told to go before the king, and yet the king has not called for her. Can you imagine 30 days of not talking to your spouse or your best friend? He, she cannot go to him. He has to ask for her, and for 30 days he has not once asked for her. She tries to tell Mordecai that she can't do this, and Mordecai sends the answer that most of us know by heart. Esther 4.12, don't think that just because you live in the king's house... You're the one Jew who will get out of this alive. If you persist in staying silent at a time like this, help and deliverance will arrive for the Jews from somewhere else. But you and your family will be wiped out. Who knows? Maybe you were made queen for just such a time as this. Those famous words for such a time as this. Mordecai reminds Esther that the royal position she has been placed in was God's divine providence. And it is time for her to use her position to protect her people. Esther realizes that Mordecai is right and it is time. But she also knows her decision could result in death, her death. So Esther chooses to prepare herself and those around her. And she says word to Mordecai to assemble all the Jews and have them fast for three days. And all the people that work with her in her house, they're going to fast for three three days too. And she says after the three days, I'm going to go before the king And if I die, I die. That's pretty strong. For three days, Esther and the Jews of Susa are united in one common goal, to call upon the Lord. Judges, you know that cycle. They call upon the Lord and plead for his divine intervention. And when the three days are over, Esther gets up, dresses herself in her finest, and boldly but humbly walks into the throne room, hoping the king will extend his scepter of favor towards her. Can you imagine three days with no food or water? Got to put on those heavy garments. But she's smart enough not to go in, you know, looking bad. She goes in looking her best. I can just imagine the room for a moment. It's all, you know, everybody's busy, everybody's talking. And then all of a sudden the door opens and first person sees there. They're like, oh, Queen Esther, where's she going? What's she doing here? And then as the room just gets quiet as she makes her way, up to the king. I can imagine the king's probably not even paying attention at this moment. And then he realizes that all of a sudden it's not as noisy as it was. And then he lays eyes on Esther. And she is walking forward. Can you imagine? Oh, her knees have had to be shaking. Because she's about to go up there. And if he does not extend that scepter to her, there's a guard standing right there with a sword, sharp enough to take her head off. The king hasn't talked to her in 30 days. He may be tired of her. And she is walking towards that. I can just imagine that poor guard too. If she's found favor with everyone, she must have his favor too. And he's going to have to do a job he doesn't want to do. And then Esther gets to the king. And when she gets there, he does hold out his scepter to her. And thankfully, I'm just thinking, Esther didn't pass out. <laughs> she didn't fall to the ground in relief. Like, I'm usually pretty good in a, in a crisis, but when it's all over, I'm done. <laughs> but instead of falling down, instead of just losing it, she looks at the king, 
as calmly as she can, I'm sure. I can just imagine this poor girl. Invites the king and Haman to a meal that evening. And King Xerxes and Haman immediately leave. The Bible says they immediately leave and go to the queen's quarters. Have this wonderful meal with her. This poor girl has fasted for three days. She's just about lost her life. And now she's got to entertain these two men at dinner. King Xerxes is so pleased with her. I mean, he hadn't seen her for 30 days. And now he realizes, hey, I should have talked to her a long time ago. Yeah, he's starting to remember why he chose her. So King Xerxes is so pleased with her that he tells her, hey, what's, what's wrong? You know, you came to the throne room for a reason. What's going on? I'll give you whatever you want up to half my kingdom. And she says, um, I want you to come to dinner again tomorrow and bring Haman with you again. Can you, this is the king, and she's asking for another dinner with him, and it's been 30 days since he's talked to her. King Xerxes curious, but he decides to let Esther have another day. I mean, why not? I was well fed, you know, I was away from the throne room and all the stress over there. Probably wondered, why does she want Haman here? But instead of refusing her, he granted her request and planned to spend another very special evening with his lovely bride. The Bible doesn't tell us, but I can imagine that Esther did not sleep that night. I would not have. She probably, you know, busy thinking about the next evening, thinking about what she's going to say, praying, I'm sure, as I wouldn't have been able to sleep. I mean, she's got a whole nation dependent on her. You know, but God doesn't call us to do easy things. He calls us to do the hard things, the impossible things, the things that require us to trust in him. So in the course of these events, Esther's not able to sleep, but King Xerxes not able to sleep either. He's having one of those, you know, sleepless nights. And so what they would do back in Bible or back in this time is see, they would call for the Chronicles of the Kings. This is a list of just all the different things that have happened in the kingdom. The day-to-day stuff, the boring stuff. He calls for this because, you know, he wants to go to sleep and he's, he's needing something to put him to sleep. He needs a bedtime story. So the guy comes in because the kingdom can't read for himself and turns to just so happens the page where Mordecai has saved the king's life. Divine providence. There's no way that's just a coincidence. And the king's sitting there listening and the scribes reading everything off. And all of a sudden, King Xerxes is like, wait a minute, that Mordecai guy, did we do anything for him? Nope. Nothing. Well, Haman, third character, he also can't sleep. He is still not satisfied knowing that the Jews will be annihilated. He specifically wants Mordecai to be annihilated, but he wants him to be humiliated at the same time. So after he spent this night in the presence of the king and queen, you know, he's all full of himself because, you know, he was the only one asked. He goes home and he's just whining and complaining. Like this man's never satisfied. Whining and complaining to his friends and his family about Mordecai. Because, you know, as he goes back to his house, he has to go back in front of Mordecai. And Mordecai is still not going to bow to him. And so, they personally, I think his family just got tired of listening to him. So, they suggest that he builds gallows 50 cubics high to hang Mordecai on. I mean, hang him as high as he can so everybody can see him. And then the first thing in the morning... so. Sorry, I jumped forward a little bit. So they suggested he does this, and Mordecai's like, that is an awesome idea, and he spends all night long having somebody else. No, he didn't do it. Having somebody else build these gallows for him. So the gallows are being built all night long. The king is listening to the chronicles all night long, and poor Esther, we don't know what she's done, but I'm sure she's not sleeping. So in the morning, 
He's on a mission. Haman is outside the king's doors because he is waiting for the doors to open so he can immediately be the first person in line to see the king and to ask him to allow him to go ahead and hang Mordecai ahead of time on the gallows. Haman has forgotten who who Mordecai is. He has forgotten that he is bringing this edict against God's chosen people and God will not stand still. The king is looking for someone to help him honor the one who saved his life. And Haman is looking to kill that very someone. Haman enters the king's room ready to ask for Mordecai's life and is met with the question, what is to be done for the man whom the king desires to honor? Haman, full of himself, is sure it's him. So he's thinking, oh, this is my chance. Like I am second in command. I am almost king. I'm going to be king for just a few minutes here. And so he tells the king. Haman suggests that the king put a royal robe, once worn by the king, on the man he is to honor. Place him on a royal horse that the king has also ridden, because that would be what you do for the man that you want to honor. Put a royal crown that the king has worn on top of this person's head, because that's what you would do for someone you want to honor. And then have a royal prince lead him through town shouting, here is what shall be done to the man whom the king desires to honor. Sounds like a great plan. Mordecai's, I'm not Mordecai, I'm sorry. Haman's ready for this to happen to him. Well, the joke's on him. King Xerxes looks, he says, that's a great idea. You go take care of that. Go honor Mordecai, the man who saved my life. Oh my gosh, you know how humiliating that would be? What a a moment of, I can just imagine his face went red. He probably just had to, you know, turn. He is about to go and lead Mordecai, his enemy, through the town, talking about how great Mordecai is. He had to do it. So he does. And as he does this, he gets finished. And when he gets finished, he runs home. Mordecai just goes back to the king's gate, and he keeps doing his job over there. Haman runs home. And when he runs home, he tells his family what has just happened. And his family, they're so encouraging, looks at him and said, you are doomed. (laughs) Mordecai's a Jew. You're doomed. Haman doesn't have any time to mope and complain and figure out his plan of attack here because now it's time for him to go to dinner once again with the king and the queen of Persia. And he can't be late. So King Xerxes and Haman enjoy another fabulous dinner with Queen Esther. And during the final course, the king asks her again, what do you want? You can have anything up to half my kingdom. And now Esther has to summon all her courage and tell him what she wants. I've heard it said courage is not the absence of fear, but is doing the right thing regardless of how you feel. Wisdom is doing the right thing in the right way. Esther does not just accuse the king of putting her people to death. In fact, she doesn't even she doesn't even immediately accuse Haman. But instead, she asks the king that if she has found favor in his eyes, and if it does please him, then give her her life and the life of her people. Remember, Esther hasn't told anybody her nationality. But now she has to in order to protect the very people she was pretending not to be. In the Bible study, it talks about how the Jews of Susa had become so much like the people of Susa that it was easy for her to hide her identity. And I think, how, how much have we become like the world 
that we're hiding our identity. So Esther, instead of just blurting everything out, she even tells the king, you know what? If we had just been sold as slaves, I wouldn't even bother you. But I can't stand by and watch them be destroyed. And the king is furious. And he wants to know who is responsible for this. Now, you remember, he signed off on this. He told Haman, do whatever you want. Instead of doing what most of us would do, Esther doesn't remind King Xerxes that he did all this. She just keeps her answer very simple and says, that evil man, Haman. Can you imagine? Haman's sitting back there. He is all lounged out. He is, you know, king and queen, having a great time, wonderful meal, drinking his wine. I can imagine he starts choking. If not, that's how my story goes. He starts choking. His face goes white. He realizes that this beloved queen, Queen Esther, is a Jew, and he has called for the annihilation of the Jews. And the only one that's going to take the blame for it is him. The king's not going to take any blame. Nobody else is going to be blamed. It is him and him alone. Haman, the Amalekite, the enemy of the Jews, he knows he's about to be destroyed. King Xerxes is so angry that he stalks out of the room. Haman, foolish man that he is, throws himself upon Esther. Okay, now if you don't know how they ate back then, they ate on these couches. So like he has thrown himself across the couch. It doesn't look good. Not at all. And King Xerxes walks back in. Of course, accuses Haman of attacking the queen. Has the guards place the hood of death over Haman's head. And these guards, now you remember they're, they're servants, they're slaves, and they haven't said anything. They've seen everything that's going on. But as soon as they know that Haman's about to be out of the picture, they conveniently let King Xerxes know, by the way, he spent all night long building these gallows over here. For Mordecai, the guy that saved your life, maybe we should go ahead and use those gallows. And King Xerxes is like, great idea to me. So Haman is gone. He's dead. Queen Esther inherits all of his property, all of his riches. Mordecai is promoted and the king is no longer angry. Problem solved. Right? There's still this edict out there. There is still this law that cannot be revoked. Esther has to, again, go before the king without being summoned. She has to don that that garment of courage and go again before the king without being summoned and hope once again for his mercy. He's he's not concerned about that law he made. The law has to be changed, and unfortunately the law of the Medes and Persians, Medes and Persians, cannot be changed. I don't know what's up with that. I never did figure that part out. But there was something about when the kings made a law, it was a law and it stayed put, and you couldn't do anything about it. But something has to be done. The Jews are about to be annihilated. So Queen Esther goes before him, and she tells him once again, and the king gives Esther and Mordecai permission to do whatever they think is best. So they create their own law that allows the Jews to defend themselves and inherit the land of and the goods of those they defeat. They were not told they could go out and attack. They were just told they could defend. So now the Jews have an even playing field. The day arrives. Few foolish people decide to attack the Jews. They are quickly defeated. And the Jews are victorious. Esther again goes before the king and pleads for one more day. 
Okay, now if you read it correctly, King Xerxes is starting to get a little tired of this. But he goes ahead and he gives permission to extend the law one more day. The law that, that this one was just for those in Susa. And this is where Haman's sons were still living. There were still people who followed Haman. And so they needed to get rid of everyone. So the people of the Persian Empire quickly realize that the Jews have a force greater than any of their false gods. And chapter 8 ends with the words, it wasn't safe to not be a Jew. What I found in Esther is a study of courage despite the odds. She started life as a little orphan girl, raised by a single male cousin, taken captive due to a king's loneliness, hiding her nationality behind a name, gains the king's favor and earns herself a crown, only to be placed in the precarious position of having to beg for the king's favor so she can turn and beg for the life of her people. Definitely not the life she would have envisioned, but through each difficult moment, Esther stood with courage and allowed herself to rise above her circumstances. Even though the book of Esther ends with no further mention of Esther, Mordecai gets all the credit, Esther is one of two books of the Bible written about a woman, and in, it, and in Esther, God is not mentioned by name, and yet his hand is seen and felt all throughout the ten chapters. So what about you? Are you willing to allow yourself to be used by God? Are you willing to show unshakable courage and do the hard things asked of you? Esther had to let go of the things that were out of her control and take action on the things that were in her control. And just like Esther, God has placed you where you are for such a time as this. Thank you, thank you. That's a beautiful story. Uh, And it's like she doesn't even have to give you any points. We see exactly what we need to do by looking at the life of Esther. And it's, it's encouraging that it doesn't matter our situation because I don't think there's any of us that are about to experience the annihilation of our entire family or our people group. And so I know if Esther can do it, then we can walk through courage and whatever it is that God is currently putting us in whatever, whatever season or trial that uh, we may be undertaking. So we're going to have some questions. Listen, I know we're getting to nap time, guys. I know. <laughs> but I want us to have, like, during the break, really good conversation about courage, about Esther. We all need, we all need courage. We all need boldness, boldness to live out our daily life, boldness to uh, talk about Christ. And then we're going to have Chris come up in a little bit, and you're going to be blessed by Chris. So you want to take a break, talk, stretch, coffee, lemonade. Uh, We're not done. It's going to get better from here. Okay. So Esther showed courage when she was asked to do something that was difficult. Has God asked you to do something or that's difficult or maybe even seems impossible? How did you respond? How are you currently responding? In what way can you show courage in a current area or situation of your life? Okay. Take about 10, 15 minutes and then we'll, we'll conclude today. Okay, so Chris is going to come on up. Chris is our um, youth pastor. Uh, He's married to Lindy. They're going to have their first baby this year. Yay, little boy. It's exciting. Guys, when you think of Chris, you need to pray for him because he works with youth. And I've worked with youth for eight eight years as a teacher. You need to pray for him because because youth are the best thing in the world, but... 
you know, you all, many of you have raised a teenager. You know what I'm talking. I'm not even going to say anything else about it. So <laughs> Chris is going to talk to us about our final, like, oh, we are going to be unshakable. Okay. And he's going to talk to us about the life of Joseph and I'm very excited. And I just, Chris is so friendly. You guys, like, I don't know. It's just like a friendly, if he asks you how you're doing, he generally means it. Cause you know, not everybody does. Okay. All right, Chris, whenever you're ready, you Thank go you, for Amanda. it. Come on. All right. You had breakfast, you had lunch, hopefully plenty of coffee. We're going get to get in this, and then uh, you can go home, take a nap, do whatever it is you want to do on your Saturday. But um, hey, Amanda, I, I first want to say, wow, right? Today has been absolutely incredible. I'm honored that I get to be a small part of it, and I'm telling you, anything that God has done today is because of your diligent leadership. And so I don't, you know, oftentimes when a leader steps into a role and has to follow someone that was very successful and did things very well, it's sometimes tempting to not fully jump in and lead and take control how you feel the Lord is leading you to because you might be tempted to just, you know, do things how they've been done because they were successful. But man, it's been so cool to see how you have taken this ministry and um, made it your own. And so can you give it up for your women's director? Come on. Some hooting and ho- She deserves more than that. Come on. Yeah, cool. Cool. Hey, you know, I think, uh, I think all of us at one point once had, say once had, currently have, say currently have, or one day soon will have, say will have, a dream. Right, and I'm not talking about the, the dream you had last night because you ate too many cheese balls before you fell asleep. Listen, I'm not even talking about the kind of dream, the thing that you just hope to do one day because it would be good for you. No, no, no. The dream I'm talking about or the dreams that I'm talking about are the ones that you believe God has implanted in your heart. Dreams for your future. Dreams for your family. Dreams for your community, for this church, dreams for your, your personal everyday ministry, you know, making sure you are part of an unshakable kingdom. The dreams I'm talking about are those God-entrusted, God-implanted dreams, right? I, I fully believe God has made every single one of us on purpose and for a purpose, and I think that purpose is to fulfill the dreams that he has placed in us. The problem is... Because of the hardships we face, the obstacles, the difficulties, the weight of what may be going on in our lives, those dreams that that once were so firmly solidified in our hearts and in our minds have been shaken out of place, maybe uprooted. And so I believe that, that God wants us to truly have unshakable dreams. Look across the table and say, unshakable dreams. Dreams that no matter the situation that we face or the amount of time that it takes, they still stay firmly planted in our hearts. And we have to have the faith to trust that if God put that dream in us, then we remain unshakable as we work for and wait for that dream to come true. Right? And so here's the thing is there's a man in the Old Testament um, 
in the Old Testament who I believe had an unshakable dream. As Amanda already said, you might know who this guy is. His name is Joseph. And so for those of you that may not fully know the story of Joseph or not fully know who he is, it's uh, a stinking long amount of chapters in the Bible, his, his whole story. And so we're not going to read all 15 chapters this morning, I promise. You want to at least go home to have dinner. But here's what we're doing. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to briefly, I'm going to walk through his story, and we're going to hit some signposts. I'm going to give you a snapshot of what Joseph went through as he went after this Dream. So this whole part of his life takes place in the book of Genesis. So you can go and read this later on if you like. The book of Genesis 37 through 50. So Joseph was one of 12 brothers. One of, uh, out of his 12 brothers, he was definitely his daddy's favorite. Come on, he knew. How many of you guys, you're, you're the favorite of the sibling group? Yeah? Okay, how many of you in here, how many of you in here, you know you're not the favorite of the sibling? You know someone else is the favorite. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. A lot of siblings in here. There are going to be some tension at home. So here's the thing. Verse 7. Verse 7 says, Jacob, Joseph's dad, Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he'd been born to him in his old age. He made a richly ornamented robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. So his brothers already hated him because he'd get beyond special treatment from their dad. But then Joseph goes and makes things worse. So in verse 7, Joseph is sleeping. He has this dream. And here's what his dream was. It says, verse 7, he goes to his brothers. He says, we were binding sheaves. In my dream, we were binding sheaves of grain out in the field. When suddenly my sheaf rose up, stood upright, while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. Oh gosh, come on, Joseph. You ain't helping yourself out, bro. So needless to say, his brothers didn't like that. And the Bible says that they hated him then even more. Then Joseph has a second dream. And he tells his brothers, he says, I had another dream. This time, the sun and the moon and the 11 stars were bowing down to me. And his dad actually heard him explain this dream. He, he, he literally says, he's like, what kind of dream is that? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? And so after, after, after hearing this, the brothers were just fed up with Joseph. They're fed up with him. And so they hatched this plan to kill him. But instead, when they, right when they were about to kill Joseph, they decided to sell him into slavery. That way the blood of their brother, it wasn't on their conscience, it, it wasn't on their hands. So they sell Joseph into slavery. He ends up uh, a slave for a man named Potiphar. Say Potiphar. Ends up for a slave, as a slave for a man named Potiphar. And after showing up at Potiphar's house, a slave, I can picture Joseph looking around and what his life is like, and he's just saying, God, what about my dream that, that you gave me? And so after a little while, with Potiphar, the Bible says, the Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered. When his master saw that the Lord, talking about Potiphar, when his master saw the Lord was with him, and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in Potiphar's eyes and became his attendant. So what this means is Joseph was literally now put in charge of this guy's household. 
However, Joseph, Joseph was a good-looking dude. Potiphar's wife noticed he was a good-looking dude. And time and time again, she tried to sleep with Joseph. And every time, Joseph refused. Well, one time, she, she tries to get him to sleep with her once again. The Bible says, she caught him by the cloak and said, come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. Great job, Joseph. So I don't know, I I guess she was just tired of being rejected by him, and so she wanted to punish Joseph. So with, with his cloak still in her hand, she ends up accusing him of attempting to rape her. And so Potiphar gets home, hears that Joseph tried to rape his wife, and he sends Joseph now to prison. So here Joseph is, once again, now in a prison cell, looking at the scraps on the ground, probably no bed, chains dangling. And I imagine him saying, is this it? God, what about that dream that you gave me? Now, the awesome thing is of this story is just like with Potiphar, right? Uh, Just like Potiphar recognized that the Lord was with Joseph and everything he touched was successful, the same thing happened in the prison. And so the Bible says, but while Joseph was there in prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in the prison And he was made responsible for all that was done there. Now, while in prison, uh, there were two other prisoners. There was like a a cupbearer and a baker. And so these two ended up having dreams of their own. And so they go to Joseph and say, Joseph, decipher our dream. Interpret our dream, please. And so Joseph tells the cupbearer that his dream means he's going to be able to get out of prison and be back at the hand or at the, at the side of the Pharaoh. And then he tells the baker, sorry, dude, homeboy, you're about to die. And so three days later, these things come true. And so before the cupbearer leaves prison to go be back by Pharaoh's side, Joseph says, hey, 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 please tell the Pharaoh about me. Do not forget about me. And what does the cupbearer do? Forgets about Joseph. Until, look across the table, say until. Until Pharaoh had a dream. And at that moment, the cupbearer remembers, oh, I know a guy. I happen to know a guy who told me my dream and it came true. So Pharaoh calls for Joseph and, and this is, this is what, he, what Joseph said that Pharaoh's dream meant. He says there's going to be seven years of extreme abundance amongst all the crops and everything in Egypt. And then there's going to be, after that, there's going to be seven years of famine. So Joseph tells the Pharaoh, he's like, look, you need to hire someone that can make sure to take a little bit of everyone's abundance during the seven years. That way you can hand it out to your people during the seven years of famine. And so Pharaoh looks at Joseph and says, all right, dude, you're my guy. This is what Pharaoh says in the Bible. He says, since God, Pharaoh's telling Joseph, since God has made all this known to you, there's no one so discerning and wise as you. So you shall be in charge of my palace and all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I, the Pharaoh, be greater than you. So Joseph just became second in command of all of Egypt only answering to the Pharaoh, only being above him. 
So Joseph does, in this scenario, he does what needs to be done. He, he collects a little bit of everyone's abundance during seven years. And then when the famine hits, the Bible says people from all over the world, so all over that area, came to collect food from Joseph so they didn't starve. This includes Joseph's family. And then this is what the Bible says. Now Joseph was the governor of the land. The people who sold grain, or the person who sold grain to all of its people. When Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. Although Joseph recognized his brothers, they did not recognize him. Then he remembered his dream. Look, Joseph had this dream of what he thought was supposed to happen with his life. And then years after years of slavery, prison, working for the Pharaoh, most likely asking himself, I imagine asking himself, is this it? When's my dream going to happen? After years of hardships that that probably would have shaken apart any of us to our core, causing people to lose faith, He was finally living in the dream that God gave him as a 17-year-old teenager. Years of possible doubts, questions, confusion, things that, that, that would have broken down most everyone else. It seems like Joseph was able to keep his faith strong in believing that God was gonna pull through with this unshakable dream. Someone say, unshakable dream. And so I, I believe that we can pull some things out of this story and apply some concepts and some principles that can help each and every one of us have unshakable, God-given dreams. And so if you're taking notes, I think that when God gives you a dream, you may face unsupportive people. I think when, you're, when, you, when God has given you a dream, you may face some unsupportive people. Joseph had people who did not believe in his dream, and you may as well. You know, the hardest part, though, about people not supporting your dream is that sometimes it might just be those closest to you. This was Joseph's own flesh and blood, his family. For you, it might be friends, coworkers, your own family, or even, God forbid, brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, listen, I I believe that we should allow people that are close with us to have a voice in our life. I do. But that's why we need to make sure we are surrounding ourselves, the people who are speaking to our life, with godly people who believe in God-sized and God-given dreams. What seems to happen so much is that we allow people into our inner circles, we give them a voice to speak into our lives but because they don't have the same faith or trust in God that we do, then they don't know how to get behind and encourage us because they don't understand why we could believe in something that might seem so stinking impossible. Those who don't support your dreams, they might be those closest to you. So you need to surround yourself with those who believe in a God who gives us God-sized dreams to chase after. But then... When God gives you a dream, you may face unsupportive people. And if they come back humbly, don't hold it against them. Look, as you're facing unsupportive people in your life, 
They might be those closest to you. If they come back humbly, don't hold it against them. I think that would be the Jesus thing to do, right? I mean, this is what Genesis chapter 50, the end of the story, verse 16. Joseph's brothers send him a message. They already found out that the guy they bowed down to was their brother. And they send this message that says, Before our father died, he instructed us to say, Please forgive your brothers for the wrong that they did to you. For their sin is treating you so cruelly. And so then the brothers are now saying to Joseph, so, so we, the servants of the God of your father, we beg you to forgive our sin. And this is what Joseph does. When Joseph received the message, he broke down and wept. Then his brothers came and he threw themselves down before Joseph. They threw themselves, themselves down before Joseph. In verse 21, Joseph tells them, no, 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 don't be afraid. I'll continue to take care of you and your children. So he reassured them by speaking kindly to them. Oh, but gosh, we just love to hold grudges though, don't we? It just feels so good. I mean, you just want to take their, their righteous noses and shove them in the ground and say, I told you so. Look at me now. But it's not what Joseph did. It's not what Jesus would do when he was alive. And as hard as it might be, it's not what we should do either. So as we are going after this dream that God has given us, when you face unsupportive people, if they come back humbly, don't hold it against them. Show them, listen, show them the same forgiveness that Jesus showed you when you went to him repenting of all your wrongdoings. So when God gives you a dream, you may not, you not only may face unsupportive people, you may also face, number two, disruptions on your path. You might also face some disruptions on your path. When Joseph had the, these dreams, you probably think he was, he was pretty pumped, right? He, he's pretty amped for them to come true. He might be blown away by what they were, but he was excited for what it meant that his future might look like what it might look like if it came true. He was probably hoping that it'd come true pretty quick. And oh my goodness, if people were gonna bow down to him, life was probably gonna be pretty good for him. If he was gonna have people bowing down to him, he probably imagined his path, his route, his road, his journey was gonna be smooth, crystal clear. His journey to this dream, his path to this dream, he was imagining it was gonna be great, I'm sure. So it was probably a pretty big shock then when he found out about some disruptions on his path. I wonder how many of us have, we have God-given dreams that when implanted into our heart or they were spoken to by the Holy Spirit to us, we only see a clear path ahead. We only want that thing to come true and we only see that thing and we put blinders on that we can't imagine there would be anything that would cause us to doubt it coming true or things to hinder it from happening. But we've got to be prepared for some disruptions. And we've got to remind ourselves that, that Joseph experienced some pretty crazy disruptions and that things would probably, uh, these, are, these are things that probably knocked any of us off our path completely, the things he went through. But we just got to look to his story, look to his example, and realize that despite how difficult the disruptions, 
the Lord was still with Joseph. Right? I mean, these are crazy things, enduring things that he had to go through. But the Bible says very clearly, the Lord was still with Joseph. And then again at his next disruption, going to prison, once again it says the Lord was still with Joseph. Ladies, as you move towards your dream that God has placed in your heart, prepare yourself for the disruptions on the path. But don't worry because later in life when you're telling the story of how God got you to your dream, you are going to get to look back and say, the Lord was still with me through it all. And so just like Joseph, you might face some disruptions on your path, but there's some that that you've also got to realize, some you also got to think about. It's that what you think are disruptions, they could be preparations for the dream. Right? What you think are disruptions, what you think are hindrances, they could be preparation for that dream. If you look at the story of Joseph, there is absolutely no way an Israelite teenager who watches his family's sheep would ever have been prepared enough to oversee and help lead a nation, let alone through a famine and a a nationwide pandemic. Joseph was a spoiled, arrogant brat. Homeboy needed an attitude adjustment. He needed his character changed. His maturity needed to increase. And through each stage of life, each disruption, he was placed in situations that allowed him to develop each of these to a greater extent each time. He started at managing a household. Then he oversaw a prison. Eventually, he was helping lead a nation. Each time the Lord grew him, developed him, what he thought were disruptions were most likely the Lord orchestrating preparations for him to be set up, for him to actually be able to handle his dream. Each horrible disruption was actually a preparation, taking him to a greater level of responsibility each time. And it was through those different stages of life, one place leading to the next, that actually ended up putting him in position to be able to have a conversation with the Pharaoh. No way, watching his family's sheep back with his family, would he have ever imagined or ever been able to talk to the Pharaoh. But because of all the disruptions, one leading to the next orchestrated, prepared him a place to be able to meet, converse with, and help the Pharaoh, putting in position for that dream. I, uh, I think of the story about how I actually got hired on here at the Grace Place. So when I was finishing college, my last semester, I lived in a house with two other guys. So there were three of us living in this house. We split everything. One of the guys is the owner of the house. So it's like December, January-ish, and I'm engaged to be married in May to a smoke show back there, pregnant with my baby. And so it's like December or january I'm getting married in May, a few months later. I've got an apartment set up waiting for us when we move in May 3rd or when we get back from our honeymoon. But it's not going to be ready for me or us to move in until then. And so I'm living in this house with these two other guys. January-ish rolls around and the guy that owns it says, hey guys, I'm moving and I'm selling the house. And I'm like, where am I supposed to go? 
I can't find a three-month lease. I mean, what, what am I supposed to do? And I was frustrated. I, I love the guy. I'm friends with him still. We hung out not that long ago. But I was just the situation. Um, it was, I had this plan. I had this dream of marrying a hottie back there. And, and this dream was supposed to come true. But my plan, my dream was majorly disrupted. And so at this time, we had some next-door neighbors, um, an, an older couple, not old, older couple. They were like grandparent age. They were phenomenal. Um, I love them still today. And we had a very neighborly relationship. Uh, we'd talk and hang out and, and all that stuff. Well, one day after I found out I had to move, I was talking to the guy and I was like, yeah, I'm going to be leaving. He's like, where are you going? I said, I don't know. He's like, well, we got a spare room. Why don't you move in with us? I said, praise the Lord. Yes, please. And these next three months were incredible, right? I mean, it is like living with your storybook grandparents. They'd make me breakfast in the morning. I would hang out with them. I'd play with their little uh, Pomeranian dog all the time. It was wonderful. And so over these few months, I got to know them really well. And uh, they got to be, feel comfortable enough to kind of recommend and get behind me. And so one day, Joe, he, he, he says, he knows I'm looking for a job as youth pastor, right? That's one of my dreams, be a youth pastor that God has placed in me. And, and uh, he says, you know, I'm, I'm going golfing with one of my best friends here pretty soon. He's looking for a youth pastor. Why don't I tell him about you? I was like, yes, please. <laughs> and sure enough, I think it was like that day they were golfing. I get a phone call from Pastor Mike Benson over at the Grace Place. Look, what I thought was a disruption was actually the Lord preparing a place for me to meet the right person to show up at my dream. I'm telling you, I'm telling you, what you think is a disruption could actually be preparation for your dream. And so I wonder how many of you in here feel like you keep hitting disruption after disruption, disruption on your path. Well, what if you're just not ready for your dream yet and God knows? What if those disruptions are actually things that God is using to prepare you, to place you in the right position, the right place for your dream to come true? Well, Chris, there's, there's no way. There's, there's no way that can be true because the disruptions on my path, they've been family members passing away, issues at home, losing my job. Look, I get it. Right, I don't know why things happen, but, but I get it. I get the, Lindy and I hit a tough disruption in our path to creating a family the last couple years. And I don't know why God lets things happen the way they do. I don't know why he, he, has a, he allows awful, heartbreaking situations to happen in our life. But what I do know in our story are two things. I know that through those disruptions, God was still with us. And I know that through those disruptions, they were actually things that God was using to prepare us and make us learn to trust him and lean into our marriage even more. Look, when God gives you a dream, you may face disruptions in your path, but I'll tell you this, ladies, the Lord is still with you. And maybe those disruptions are actually preparing you for your dream. You just can't see it yet. When God gives you a dream, you may face unsupportive people and disruptions in your path, but I will 
finish it off with this right here, the hope at the end of the tunnel, the light at the end of the tunnel. When God gives you a dream, you may, it's not may, it's you will experience the fruit of your faith. When God gives you a dream, when he puts a promise in your life, you will experience the fruit of your faith. Look, God, God gave Joseph a dream. He got to experience it. But when God gives you a dream, the only thing that will stop it from happening is oftentimes how you respond to the journey that's getting you there. Because if God is truly the one, if he's truly the one that placed in your heart, no matter how impossible it may seem, if you navigate it with Jesus as your compass, it will come to pass. It might look different than what you imagine, but that dream will come to pass. And even though God is always faithful, your dream will rarely happen. I think notes say never, but the dream will rarely happen when you want it to, right? Their dream will rarely happen when you want it to. You know, the Bible says that Joseph was 17 years old when, we, when he had the dream. He was 17 years old. Then the Bible says that he was 30 years old when he started working for Pharaoh. It's 13 years. But then you count the seven years of abundance. It was 20 years later that his brothers came walking to Egypt. It was 20 years later that the dream finally came true. I think pastor says this all the time. God's never late, but he's seldom on time, right? And so as long as we stay faithful to God through it all, He'll make sure our dreams come true. And, and it just won't, won't always be what we think it will be. You've also got to keep in mind, and when it comes to the fruit of our faith, right? when, we, when we have this dream placed in our life, what we will experience our dream, and we're going to experience the fruit of that faith. But you've got to keep in mind, your fruit could be the answer to someone else's prayer. Whatever your dream is that you have stayed faithful to, your unshakable dream, it could end up being the answer to someone else's prayer. Joseph's dream was to be in a position where his family would bow down to him. It was in that position that he was able to fulfill the needs of an entire nation in trouble. And so, ladies, as, as you reach the dream that God has placed in your life, in your heart, be on the lookout for how your dream can bless those around you as well. And so when God gives you a dream, if you want it to be an unshakable dream, then you prepared, then be prepared because you may face unsupportive people, disruptions on your path. But you can also be guaranteed that when it does happen, you'll get to experience the fruit of your faith holding true to who God is and who Jesus is in your life. But your dream will only be unshakable if through the journey you choose to make decisions and react in a way that is faithful to the one who gave you that dream. Now, unfortunately, we're human. And as humans, we sometimes are shaken. Our dream gets shaken out of place. Maybe it gets uprooted. And so what do you do when your dream and your faith in the one who gave you the dream is shaken? Um, as I was preparing this, I, at this point in my sermon, I, I looked to Lindy and I said, Hey, 
we've kind of got a story about this. You feel comfortable sharing? She goes, do you know me? I said, okay, I'll, I'll say it. <laughs> um, so like I said, we, we had a pretty major disruption on our way to creating a family, and we, we struggled with infertility for four years. And I know lots of people struggle far longer, but for us, four years was a long time. And it was during that very difficult season that, um, I mean, over time, I mean, Lindy tells the story, her, her, her dream of having a baby, it was shaken. Um, and the faith in the one who gave us that dream was shaken. And so, I mean, there is difficult, difficult seasons of, of frustration and doubt and confusion. And so there was a shift, though, that took place. A shift, and, and she, she explains it this way. She says, I knew the truth of who God was. She grew up in church, pastor's kid. I knew the truth of who God was, but my emotions and my feelings overshadowed the truth of who God was, and my faith in him was shaken. My faith in what he said was shaken. And it's hard to, to walk through that, but I think a lot of people might experience something similar. Maybe a lot of you in here, faith has been shaken. Your dreams have been shaken. And so the, the shifting point for her was over time, it was some process of God doing stuff in her and different people and just the Holy Spirit. But she had this, this revelation of, if not, he is still good. If not, if God's giving you this dream, I believe in some way, shape, or form it will happen. But if it's not how I imagined it, if it's not what I have thought, God is still good. And so it was, it's so cool to see. And it, it was all, it was crazy to, to literally watch her, the shift, go from not knowing what in the world to think or trust or, or does God even see me or hear me to realizing that and then now saying, okay, God, what are you trying to teach me? How can I help others? What are you trying to show us through this? And so, ladies, I'm, I'm telling that to say, if your dream is unshaken, or if your dream has been shaken, then trust the Lord. Know that if not how you imagined or whatever, God is still good and, and he is still faithful through it all. Band, you guys can go ahead and start playing. And so here's what I want you to do, ladies. Go ahead and stand with me. As you're standing, if you're able, if you're able, go ahead and stand. And you can bow your heads and close your eyes. I want you to think about the dream that God has given you. Maybe it's a dream that's been long lost in your life. Are you still on the path towards that dream? Have there been people criticizing you for believing in this dream? What kind of disruptions have been on this path? Now imagine what could happen if you maintained unshakable on this path. What version of you is experiencing the fruit of that dream? 
What is God trying to teach you right now? What is God trying to develop in you? Is it your character, your attitude? Is it a skill or your leadership? Is God trying to put you in a place to set you up for success with that dream? I just want to go ahead and take 45 seconds, just the band plan, and I want us to just process and think. Ask the Lord to reveal what he's trying to do in your life to get you to this dream. Maybe you're thinking, okay, Chris, I don't, I don't know what my dream is. Well, the pastor likes to say is, he says, look in your hands and look in your heart. Like, what are you good at? What are you talented at? And what are you passionate about? What has God given you to work with? And what has he placed in your heart? And maybe that, find something that can be your dream. Take a few more seconds and just talk to the Lord and ask him to speak to you. Reveal that maybe the disruptions you're facing are preparation and how can they prepare us? Are there people in our lives that we've allowed too much voice to criticize this God-sized, God-given dream? Lord, I pray over every single one of these ladies in here. God, if we have, as we have learned to be a part of the unshakable kingdom, be unshakable leaders, have unshakable courage, I pray it would all lead us to fulfilling and following into these unshakable dreams that you've placed in us. I pray that we would not only be reminded of your goodness and who you are when we show up to this building and around other people, but God, when we're driving to work and doubts start flooding our mind, would you remind us of who you are and what you promised us? As we're in the middle of dealing with maybe one of the disruptions, one of the things that seem to be a hindrance, would you remind us, Holy Spirit, that maybe we're needing to grow and develop from this to make sure that we can successfully follow into this dream. God, ultimately, we trust you with it. And through it all, Lord, we know that you'll still be with every single one of us. We love you.
It's your breath in our lungs. So we pour out our praise. We pour out our praise. It's your breath in our lungs. So we pour out our praise to you holy. Great You're so great. 
to your breath in our lungs. So we pour out our praise. We pour out our praise. It's your breath in our lungs. So we pour out our praise to you only. And in the arms of the Father, there is love like no other. And he who formed all things offers love to me. And where you go, dark through the narrow and in all we do we are bound to you I want to be close to you I want to be close to you there's nothing in this world that compares to all you are. And we are found in your presence, seeking you in your fullness. Give us eyes to see.
your prayer my soul devotion my only focus to worship you my life surrendered my heart abandoned for more of you my soul devotion my soul devotion, my only focus to worship you. My life surrendered, my heart abandoned for more of you. I want to be close, I want to be close. To you, I want to be close to you. There's nothing in this world that compares to all you are. I want to be close. I want to be close to you. I want to be close to you. There's nothing in this world that compares to all you are. Thank you, Jesus. We want to be close. Jesus, we to praise God. you, Lord. We just praise you, Jesus. And we, we thank you, Father. Thank you, Lord how grateful we are for your unshakable character for your unshakable kingdom that you stand firm and steady and that we truly can place all of our faith and all of our trust in you because you are good Lord it's so easy in this setting in church to adopt these principles and to hold on to the concept of who you are, of your truth, of your nature, of what you've called us to live in. Um, but I want that to go beyond now. Like nudge in our spirit, bring to remembrance in our mind the things that we've learned, that we know that we can stand on who you are, that your word is true, that the Holy Spirit will lead and guide us, that we can, as followers of Christ, when we centralize you, when we commit everything that we have, when we surrender to your will, we do our part to be obedient in prayer and worship and of reading your word, having relationship with you, that we also can stand unshakable, unshakable in courage, unshakable in leadership, unshakable to our dreams and anything else, fill in the blank to what it is that applies specifically to each of us. So in those moments where we feel 
swayed, when we feel like we're stumbling, when we want to fall down, Lord, we know that you can hold us up, that you are our comfort, you are our strength. God, give us grit, give us um, determination and focus to serve you in a world that's against you. Help us, Lord. As we love you, we embrace your love, and as we in turn love other people, that will fulfill that universal purpose told to us in the Bible. We praise your holy name, Lord. We thank you. We honor you today. In your mighty and precious name we pray. Amen. Amen.